This is the SFF Audio Podcast. Today's podcast is a reading of Starship by Poole Anderson. It's read by Paul Harvey for LibriVox. It runs one hour, 32 minutes, and we will be discussing it afterward. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Paul Harvey. Starship by Paul Anderson. The strangest space castaways of all, the Terrans, left their great interstellar ship unmanned in a tight orbit around Kazakh, descended, all of them, in a lifeboat to investigate that weird Iron Age world, and the lifeboat cracked up. With sunset, there was rain. When Dougal Anson brought his boat into Krakenau Harbor, there was only a vast, wet darkness around him. He swore in a sulfurous mixture of Krakenaui, Volgazani, and half a dozen other languages, including some spaceman's terrestrial, and let down the sail. The canvas was heavy and awkward in the drenching rain. It was all he could do to lash it around the boom. Then he picked up the long wooden sweep and began sculling his boat in toward the dock. Lightning flared bluely through the rain, and he saw the great bay in one livid flash, filled with galleys at anchor and the little schooners of the fishing fleet. Beyond the wharfs, the land climbed steeply toward the sky, and he saw the dark mass of the town reaching up to the citadel on the hilltop. Dark, dark, hardly a light showed in the gloom. What in the name of Shantuzik was up? The waterfront, at least, should have been alive with torches and music and body merriment, and the newly installed streetlights should have been twinkling along the main avenues leading up to the castle. Instead, Krakenau lay crouched in night, and he scowled and drove the light vessel shoreward with rhythmic sweeps of the long oar. Uneasiness prickled along his spine. It wasn't right. He'd only been gone a few days. What had happened in the meantime? When he reached the pier, he made fast with quietness unusual to him. Maybe he was being overcautious. Maybe it was only that the king had died or some other reason for restrained conduct had arisen. But a man didn't spend years warring among the pirates of the outer islands and the neighboring kingdoms around Krakenau without learning to be careful. He ducked under the awning and the bows, which was the boat's only shelter, and got a towel from the sea chest and rubbed his rain-wet body dry. He'd only been wearing a tattered pair of breeches, and the water ran along his ribs and down his flanks. Then he shrugged on a tunic and a coat of ring mail over that, a flat-bladed sword at his side and a helmet over his long yellow hair completed his outfit. He felt secure now and jumped up to the pier. For a moment he stood and thought. The steady rain washed down over his leather cape, blurring vision a few meters away, and only the intermittent flicker of lightning broke the darkness. 
or to go. His father's house was the logical place, perhaps, but the Macefield dwelling was a little closer to here, and Alan, he grinned, and set out at a long stride. Macefield's be it. The street onto which he turned opened before him like a tunnel of night. The high, steep-roofed houses lay dark on either side, walling it in, and the floral globes were unlit. When the lightning blinked, the wet cobblestones gleamed. Otherwise, there was only darkness and rain. He passed one of the twisting alleys and glanced at it with automatic caution. The next instant, he had thrown himself to the ground, and the javelin whipped through the place where his belly had been. He rolled over and bounded to his feet, crouched low, the sword whining out of its scabbard into his hand. Four Kazaki sprang from the alley and darted at him. Dougal Anson grunted, backed up against a wall. The natives were armed and mailed. They were warriors, and they had all the unhuman swiftness of their species. Four of them. The leading attacker met a sword and a clang of steel. Dougal let him come lunging in, took the cut on his mailed ribs, and swept his own weapon murderously out. Faster than a man could think, the Kazaki had his own blade up to parry the sweeping blow, but he wasn't quite fast enough. He met it at an awkward angle, and the terrestrial's sheer power sent the sword spinning from his hand. The hand went too, a fractional second later, and he screamed and fell back and away. The others were upon Anson. For moments it was parry and slash, three against one, with no time to feel afraid or notice the cuts in his arms and legs. A remote part of his brain told him bleakly, This is all, you're finished. No lone earthling ever stood up long to more than two Kazaki. But he hardly noticed. Suddenly, there were only two in front of him. He darted forth from the wall, his sword crashing down with all the power of his huge body behind it. The warrior tried to skip aside too late. The tremendous blow smashed his own parry down and sang in his skull bones. And the last of the attackers died. He tumbled over beside the second, and each of them had a feathered shaft between his ribs. The bowman came loping through the rain. He paused in typical Kazakh fashion to slit the throat of the wounded being and then came up to where Dougal Anson stood panting. The human strained through the rainy dark. Lightning glimmered in the sky, and he recognized the newcomer. Janizek! And Anson, nodded the Kazaki. His sharp white teeth gleamed in his shadowed face. You seem to have met a warm welcome. Too warm, but thanks. Anson bent over the nearest of the corpses, and only now did the realization penetrate his brain. They all wore black mail of a certain pattern, spiked helmets, red cloaks. Gods of Gorzak, they were all royal guardsmen. He looked up to the dark form of Janizek, and his lean face was suddenly tight. What is this? he asked slowly. I thought maybe bandits or some enemy state had managed to enter the city. That would be hard to do now that we have the guns said Janizek. No, these are within our own walls. If you'll look closely, 
you'll see they wear a gold-colored brassard. Prince Volaketch, but he... There's more to this than Volaketch, and more than a question of the throne, said Janizek. Then suddenly, urgently, but we can't stay here to talk. They're patrolling the streets. It's dangerous to be abroad. Let's go to shelter. What's happened? Hansen got up, towering over the native by a good quarter meter, his voice suddenly rough. What happened? How is everyone? Not well. Come on now. Ellen? Macefield Ellen? I don't know. Nobody knows. Now come on. They slipped into the alley. Anson was blind in the gloom, and Janizik's slim, six-fingered hand took his to guide him. The Kazaki were smaller than terrestrials and lacked the sheer strength and endurance which Earth's higher gravity gave. But they could move like the wind. They had an utter grace and balance, beside which humans were clumsy cattle. And they saw in the dark. Dougal Anson's mind weird in desperate speculation. If Volaketch had gotten enough guardsmen and soldiers on his side to swing a palace revolution, it was bad. But matters looked worse than that. Why should Volaketch's men have assaulted a human? Why should Janizek have to sneak him into a hiding place? How had the revolutionists gotten control in the first place against King Alligan's new weapons? What powers did they have now? What had become of the human community in Krakenau? What of his father, his brothers and sisters, his friends? What of Macefield Ellen? What of Ellen? He grew aware that Janizek had halted. They were in an evil-smelling, refuse-littered courtyard, surrounded by tumble-down structures, dark and silent as the rest of the city. Anson realized that all Krakenau was blacked out. In such times of danger, the old Kazaki clandom reasserted itself. Families barricaded themselves in their dwellings, prepared to fight all comers till the danger was past. The city was awake, yes, it was crouched in breathless tension all around him. But not a light showed, not a hand stirred, not a voice spoke. They were all waiting. Janizik crouched at the base of one of the old buildings and lifted a trap door. Light gleamed dimly up from a cellar. He dropped lightly down, and Anson followed, closing the door behind him. There was only one smoky lamp in the dank gloom. Shadows were thick and huge around the guttering wick. The red flame picked out faces, shimmered off cold steel, and lost itself in darkness. Anson's eyes scanned the faces. Half a dozen humans, Chang Chong Chen, Dufrir Marie, Gonzalez Alonzo, and his wife Nora, who was Anson's sister. Dougal Joan, Macefield Philip, no sign of Ellen. Anse, Anse, the voices almost sobbed out of the dim-lit hollowness. Joan and Nora sprang forward, as if to touch their brother, make sure he was alive and no vision of the night. But Janicek waved them back with his sword. No noise, hissed the Kazaki's fierce whisper. No noise. By all the thirteen hells, Volaketch's burats are all over the city. If a patrol finds us... Ellen! 
Anson's blue eyes searched for Macefield Philip, crouched near the lamp. Where's your sister, Phil? I don't know, whispered the boy. We're all who seem to have escaped. They may have caught her. I don't know. Father, Joan's voice caught with a dry sob. Ansa, father and Jamie are dead. The rebels killed them. For a moment, Anson couldn't grasp the reality of that. It just wasn't possible that his big laughing father and young Jamie the brat should be killed. No, but he looked up and then looked away. When he turned back to face them, his visage had gone hard and expressionless, and only the white-knuckled grip on a sword showed he was not a stranger. All right, he said slowly, very slowly and steadily. All right, give me the story. What is it? What happened in Krakenau? Janicek padded around to stand before him. He was not the only Kazaki in the cellar. There were a good dozen others. Mostly they were young males, and Anzi recognized them. Bolazan, Pragikech, Slavatazik. He'd played with them as a child. He'd fared out with them as a youth. And a man to the wars, to storm the high citadel of Zarganau and smite the warriors of Olgazan, and pirate the commerce of the outer islands. They were good comrades, yes, but father and Jamie were dead. Ellen, Ellen was vanished. Only a fragment of the human community remained. His world had suddenly come down in ruin about him. Well, his old bleak resolution came back to him, and he met the yellow, slit-pupiled gaze of Janicek with a challenging stare. They were a strange contrast, these two, for all they had fought shoulder to shoulder halfway round the planet, had sung and played and roistered from Krakenau to Gorgazan, comrades in arms, blood brothers maybe, but neither was human from the viewpoint of the other. Dougal Anson was big even for a terrestrial. His tawny head rode at full two meters, and his wide shoulders strained the chainmail he wore. He was young, but his face had had the youth burned out of it by strange suns and wild winds around the world, was lean and brown and marked with an old scar across the forehead. His eyes were almost intolerably bright and direct in their blue stare, the eyes of a bird of prey. The Kazaki was humanoid, to be sure, shorter than the terrestrial average, but slim and lithe. Soft golden fur covered his sinewy body, and a slender tail switched restlessly against his legs. His head was the least human part of him, with its sloping forehead, narrow chin, and blunt-muzzled face. The long whiskers around his mouth and above the amber cat eyes twitched continuously, sensitive to minute shifts in air currents and temperature. Along the top of his skull, the fur grew up in a cockatoo plume that swept back down his neck, a secondary sexual characteristic that females lacked. Janizek was something of a dandy, and even now he wore the baggy, silk-like trousers, long red sash, and elaborately embroidered blouse and vest of a Krakenui noble. 
It was woefully muddy, but he managed to retain an air of fastidious elegance. The bow and quiver across his back, the sword and dirk at his side, somehow looked purely ornamental when he wore them. He was almost dwarfed by Ansa's huge thewed height. But old Ching Chung Chen noticed, not for the first time, that the human wore clothing and carried weapons of Kazaki pattern, and that the harsh syllables of Krakenawi came more easily to his lips than the terrestrial of his father's. And the old man nodded gravely and a little wearily. Janicek spoke rapidly. Volokhetch must have been plotting his return from exile a long time. He managed to raise a small army of pirates, mercenaries, and outlawed Krakenaui, and he made bargains with groups within the city. Two days ago, certain of the guards seized the new guns and let Volokhetch and his men in. Others revolted within the town. I think King Alligan was killed. At least I've seen or heard nothing of him since. There's been some fighting between rebels and loyalists, but the rebels got all the earth weapons when they captured the royal arsenal, and since then they've just about crushed resistance. Loyalists who could fled the city. The rest are in hiding. Volokhetch is king. But why us? The terrestrials, what have we to do with... Janicek's yellow eyes blazed at him. You aren't stupid, blood brother. Think. After a moment, Ansei nodded bleakly. The starship. Of course. Volokhetch has seized the rocket boat. No terrestrial in his right mind would show him how to use it, so he had to capture someone who understood its operation and force them to take him out to the starship. Old Macefield Henry was killed resisting arrest. You know how bloody guardsmen are, in spite of orders to take someone alive. Volokhetch ordered the arrest of all terrestrials then. A few surrendered to him, a few were killed resisting. Most were captured by force. As far as we know, this group is all which escaped. Then Ellen? That's the weird thing. I don't believe she has been caught. Volokhetch's men are still scouring the city for an earthling woman, as the orders read, and who could it be but Ellen? No other woman represents any danger or any desirable capture to Volokhetch. Ellen understands astrogation, said Aunt slowly. She learned it from her grandfather. Yes, and now he is dead. She is the only human, the only being on this planet who can get that rocket up to the starship. And Macefield Carson knows it. Carson? Ellen's older brother? What? Janicek's voice was cold as winter. Macefield Carson was with Volokhetch. He led the rebels inside the city. Now he's the new king's lieutenant. Carson, no. Carson, yes. Janicek's smile was without mirth or pity. His eyes sought out Philip, huddled miserably beside the lamp. Isn't that the truth? The boy nodded, too choked with his own unhappiness to cry. 
Carse always was a friend of Volaketch. Before King Elegant outlawed him, he mumbled. And he always said how it was a shame and how Volaketch would know better what to do with the starship than anyone now. Then, that night, his voice trailed off. He sat dumbly, staring into the flame. Carson led the rebel guardsmen in their seizure of the city guns, said Janicek. He also rode to the Macefield house at the head of a troop of them and called on his people to surrender on promise of good treatment. Joe and the mother did, and I suppose they're held somewhere in the citadel now. Phil and Ellen happened to be out at the time. When Phil heard of the uprising, he was afraid to give himself up, in spite of the heralds that went about promising safety to those who did. He heard how the rebels had been killing his friends. He went to Slavodizic here, whom he could trust, and later they got in touch with me. I'd used this hiding place before, and gathered all the fugitives I could find here. Janicek shrugged, a sinuous, unhuman gesture. Since then, I've seen Kars at a distance, riding around like a prince of the blood, with a troop of his own personal guardsmen. I suspect he really runs things now. Volaketch wants power, but only Kars can show him how to get it. And Ellen? No sign of her. But as I said, I think she's in hiding somewhere. Or the guards wouldn't be out looking for a woman. She wouldn't give herself up. Not Ellen. A grim pride lifted Anse's head. Remains the problem of finding her before they do, said Gonzales Alonso. If they catch her and make her plot in orbit for the rocket, they'll have the starship, which means power over the whole planet. Not that I care who's king, growled Pragaketch, but you know that Macefield Carson never did want to use the ship to get out to the stars, and I want to see those other worlds before I die. To the thirteenth hell with the other worlds, snarled Bolazan. Elegant was my king, and it's for me to avenge him and put his rightful heir on the throne. We all have our motives for wanting the blood of Folaketch and Carson, said Janizek. Never mind that now. The important thing is how to get at their livers. We're few, ants. Here are all the free humans we know of, except Macefield Ellen. There can't be more than two or three at large and perhaps ten dead. That means the enemy holds almost a hundred human captives. Discounting children and others who are ignorant of terrestrial science, it still means they'll be able to operate the guns, the steel mill, the atomic power plant, all the new machines except the rocket boat, and they only need Ellen for that. Ants nodded slowly. What is our strength? he asked. I don't know. Not much. I know where about a hundred Kazaki warriors are hiding ready to follow us whenever we call on them. And there may be many more sitting at home now who will rise if someone else takes the lead. But the enemy has all the guns. It would be suicide. What about the Kazaki who fled? Usually in one of the planet's violent changes of governments, the refugees were powerful nobles 
who would be slain as a safety measure if they stayed at home, but who could, in exile, raise strong forces for a comeback. Such a one had Volokhetch himself been, barely escaping with his life after his disastrous attempt to seize the throne a few years back. Don't be more stupid than you can help, snorted Janizek. By the time they can have rallied enough to do any good, Volokhetch and Carson will have the starship, one way or another, and then the whole world is at their mercy. That means we have to strike back somehow, quickly. Ant stood for a moment in thought. The habits of his warring, wandering years, were coming back to him. He had faced death and despair before, and with strength and cunning and bluff and sheer luck had come through alive. This was another problem, more desperate and more urgent, but still another problem. No, there was more to it than that. His face grew bleak, and it was as if a coldness touched his heart. Carson was Ellen's older brother, and even if they had quarreled from time to time, he knew she had always felt deeply bound to him. Carse is everything I never was. He stayed in Krakenau and studied and became an educated man and a skilled engineer while I went hallooing over the world. He's brave and a good fighter. So am I. But he's so much more than that. I imagine it was his example that made Ellen learn the astrogation only her grandfather knew. And now I'm back from roaming and roving with Janicek, and I'm trying hard to settle down and learn something so that I won't be just a barbarian, a wild Kazaki in human skin, when we go out to the civilization of the stars, so that I won't be too utterly ashamed to ask Ellen to marry me. And it was all going pretty well until now, but now I'm fighting her brother. Well, he pushed the thought out of his brain. After all, Apparently she was in opposition to Carse's plans, too. I wonder why they tried to kill me, he asked aloud, more to fill in the time while he thought than out of curiosity. You'd be of no use to Carson, having no technical education, said Janicek. While your knowledge of fighting and your connections with warlike groups make you dangerous to him. Also, I don't think he ever liked your paying attention to Ellen. No, he always said I was a waster, called me a, an absorbed Kazaki. I'd have split his skull if he hadn't been Ellen's brother. No matter now, we've more important things to talk over. Have we now, he thought sickly. Carson must know Ellen well, better than I do. If he thinks he can have me killed without making her hate him, then maybe I never had any chance with her. Then how'd you happen by? He asked tonelessly. I've been out from time to time, looking for Ellen and killing guardsmen whenever I could catch them alone. Janicek's white fangs gleamed in a carnivore smile. And of course, I expected you back from your fishing trip about this time and watched for you, lest you blunder into their hands. Ants began to pace the floor, back and forth, his head bent to avoid the basement rafters. If Carson was in control and out to kill him, there was more to it than that, of course, 
the whole future of the planet Kazakh, perhaps of the fabulous galactic civilization itself, was balanced on the edge of a sword. If Volokhetch, or a descendant of his, took the warlike race out among the stars, with a high level of industry to back a scheme of conquest, ah, but it didn't matter. All the universe didn't matter. There was only Ellen, and his own dead kin, and himself. A man's heart can only hold so much. Janizik stood quietly back, watching his friend's restless prowling. He had seen that pacing before, and he knew that some scheme would come out of it, crazy and reckless and desperate, with his own cool, unhuman intelligence to temper it and make it workable. He and Ants made a good team. They made the best damned fighting team Kazak had ever seen. Presently, the human lifted his head. There was silence in the hiding place, thick and taut, so that they could hear their own breathing and the steady drum of rain on the trapdoor. I have an idea, said Ants. The long night wore on. Janicek had sent most of his Kazaki out to alert the other loyalists in their hiding places, but only they had a chance of slipping unobserved past the enemy patrols. Humans, obviously alien, slow-footed and clumsy beside the flitting shadows of Kazakh, would never get far. They had to wait. Ants was glad of the opportunity for conference with Janicek, planning the assault on the citadel. Neither of them was very familiar with the layout, but Alonzo, as an engineer on the rocket-building project, and old Chang had been there often enough to know it intimately. It was impossible that a few hundred warriors armed with the primitive weapons of Kazakh could take the stronghold. Its walls were manned by more fighters than that, and there were the terrible earth-type guns as well. Alonzo had a blaster with a couple of charges, but otherwise there was nothing modern in the Loyalist force. But still, that futile assault was necessary. It's taking a desperate chance, said Dougal Joan. She was young yet, hardly out of girlhood, but her voice had an indomitable ring. The true warriors among the five earthling families were all Dougal, thought Janicek. Suppose Ellen doesn't come out of hiding. Suppose she's dead or, or captured already, in spite of what we think. We'll just have to try and destroy the rocket then, said Alonzo. Certainly, we can't let Volokhetch get to the starship. He sighed heavily, and the labor of another generation will be gone. It wouldn't take us long to build another boat, said his wife. We know how now, and we have the industry to do it. There are only a few who really know how to handle and build the terrestrial machines, and most of them are in the enemy's hands, reminded old Chang. I'm sure I couldn't tell you much about atomic engines, even though I was on the starship herself once. If those few are killed, we may never be able to duplicate our efforts. What terrestrials survive will sink back into barbarism, become simply another part of Kazaki culture. I don't know, said Nora. I know, because I've seen it happen, insisted Chang. 
In the 50 years since we were marooned here, two generations have been born on Kazakh. They've grown up among Kazaki, played with native children, worked and fought with Kazaki natives, adopted the dress and speech and whole outlook of Krakenau. Only a few of this third generation have consciously tried to remain terrestrial. I must admit that Macefield Carson is one such, Ellen is another, but few others. Would you have us wall ourselves out from the world? asked Ants with a bridling anger. No, I don't see how the situation could be helped. We are a minority in an alien culture with which we've had to cooperate. It's only natural that we'd be more assimilated than assimilating. Even at that, we've wrought immense changes. Janicek nodded. The stranded terrestrials had found themselves in an early Iron Age civilization of city-states, among a race naturally violent and predatory. For their own survival, they had had to league forces with the state in which they found themselves, Krakenau, as it happened. Before they could build the industry they needed, they had to have some security, which meant that they must teach the Krakenaui military principles and means of making new weapons which would make them superior to their neighbors. After that, well, it took an immense technology to build even a small spaceship. The super-alloys, which could stand the combustion of rocket fuel required, unheard-of elements, such as manganese and chromium, which required means of mining and refining them, which required a considerable chemical plant, which required how far down do you have to start. And there were a hundred or a thousand other requirements of equal importance and difficulty. Besides, the terrestrials had had to learn much from scratch themselves. None of them had ever built a rocket ship, had ever seen one in action even. It was centuries obsolete in galactic civilization. But gravity drives were out of the question. So they'd had to design the ship from the ground up, which meant years of painstaking research. And only a few interested humans and Kazaki to do it. The rest were too busy with their own affairs in the brawling, barbaric culture. Ten years ago, the first space boat had blasted off toward the starship and exploded in mid-acceleration. More designing, more testing, more slow building, and now the second one lay ready. Perhaps it could reach the starship. The starship, faster than light, weightless when it chose to be for all its enormous mass, armed with atomic guns that could blast a city to superheated vapor. Whoever controlled that ship could get to galactic stars in a matter of weeks, or could rule all Kazaki if he chose. No wonder Carson and Volokich had struck now, before the rocket boat was launched, when they had the ship. But only Ellen knew the figures of its orbit and the complicated calculations by which the boat would plot a course to get there. A bold warrior might make a try at reaching the ship by seat-of-the-pants piloting, but he wouldn't have much chance of making it. So Ellen and the rocket boat 
were the fulcrum of the future. Strange, mused Chang, strange that we should have had that accident. They had heard the story a hundred times before, but they gathered around to listen. There was nothing else to do while the slow hours dragged on. We were ten, all told, five men and their wives. Exploratory expeditions are often out for years at a time, so the service makes it a policy to man the ships with married couples. It's hard for a Kazaki to appreciate the absolute equality between the sexes which human civilization has achieved. It's due to the advanced technology, of course, and we're losing it as we go back to barbarism. Ants felt a small hand laid on his arm. He looked down into the dark eyes of Dufrere Marie. She was a pretty girl, a little younger than he, and until he'd really noticed Ellen, he'd been paying her some attention. I don't care about equality, she whispered. A woman shouldn't try to be a man. I'd want only to cook and keep house for my man and bear his children. It was, Ants realized, a typical Kazaki attitude. But he remembered with a sudden pity that Carson had been courting Marie. This is pretty tough on you, he muttered. I'll try to see that Carson's saved if we win, he added wryly. Him? I don't care about that Macefield. Let them hang him. But Ants, be careful. He looked away, his face hot in the gloom realizing suddenly why Macefield Carson hated him. Briefly, he wished he hadn't had such consistent luck with women. But the accident that there was a preponderance of females in the second and third generations of Kazaki humans had made it more or less inevitable, and he, well, he was only human. There'd been earthling girls, and not a few Kazaki women, had been intrigued by the big terrestrial. Yes, I was lucky, he thought bitterly. Lucky in all except the one that mattered. We'd been a few weeks out of Avendar. It was an obscure outpost then, though I imagine it's grown since, when we detected this soul-type sun. Seeing that there was an Earth-like planet, we decided to investigate. And since we were all tired of being cooped in the ship, and telescopes showed that any natives which might exist would be too primitive to endanger us, we all went down in the lifeboat. And the once-in-a-billion chance happened. The atomic converters went out of control, and we barely escaped from the boat before it was utterly consumed. We were stranded on an alien planet, with nothing but our clothes and a few hand weapons. And with our ship that would go faster than light, circling in its orbit not 10,000 kilometers above us. No chance of rescue. There are just too many suns for the galactic coordinators to hope to find a ship that doesn't come back. Expansion into this region of space wasn't scheduled for another two centuries. So there we were, and until we could build a boat which would take us back to our ship, there we stayed. And it's taken us 50 years so far. Pragaketch came in with the rain glistening on his fur and running in small puddles about his padding feet. We're ready, 
he said. Every warrior whose hiding place we knew has been contacted. Then we might as well go. Janizek got up and stretched luxuriously. His eyes were like molten gold in the murky light. So soon, Marie held Ant's back with anxious hands. This same night? The sooner the better, Ant said grimly. Every day that goes by, more of our friends will be found out and killed. More places will be searched for Ellen. Volaketch's grip on the city will grow stronger. He put the spiked helmet back on his head and buckled the sword about his mailed waist. Come on, Janicek. The rest stay here and wait for word. If we're utterly defeated, such of us as survive will manage to get back and lead you out of Krakenau somehow. Marie started to say something, then shook her head as if the words hurt her throat and drew Ants' face down to hers. Goodbye, then, she whispered. Goodbye, and the gods be with you. He kissed her more awkwardly than was his wont, feeling himself a thorough scoundrel. Then he followed Pragaketch and Janicek out the trap door. The courtyard was filled with Kazaki warriors, standing silently in the slow, heavy rain. It was the darkness of early morning, and only an occasional wane lightning flash gleaming on spears and axes broke the chill gloom. Ants was aware of softly moving, supple bodies pressing around him, of night-seeing eyes watching him with an impassive stare. It was he and Janicek who had the plan, and who had the most experience in warfare, and the rest looked to them for leadership. It was not easy to stand under that cool, judging scrutiny, and Ant strode forth into the street with the feeling of relief at the prospect of action. As they moved toward the castle, along the narrow, cobbled lanes, winding up the hills, their army grew. Warriors came loping from alleys, came slipping out of the dark, barricaded houses, seemed to rise out of the rainy night around them. All Krakenau was abroad, it seemed, but quietly, quietly. And throughout the town, other such forces were on the move, gathering under the lead of anyone who would be trusted, converging on the citadel and the rocket ship it guarded. Tonight, victory, or destruction of the boat and a drawn battle, or repulsion and ultimate shattering defeat. The gods are abroad tonight. Somewhere, faint and far through the dull washing of rain, a trumpet blew a harsh challenge once and again. After it came a distant, muted shouting of voices and a clattering of swords. One of our bands has come across a patrol, said Janizek unnecessarily. Now all hell will be loose in Krakenau. Come on. They broke into a trot up the hill. Rounding a sharp turn in the street, they saw a close-ranked mass of warriors with spears aloft. Guardsmen. The two forces let out a simultaneous yell and charged at each other in the disorderly Kazaki fashion. It was beginning to lighten just a little. Ants could make out enough for purposes of battle. Hi-ya, 
Here we go. He smashed into a leading guard, who stabbed at him with his long pike. The edge grazed off Ansa's heavy chain mail as the earthling chopped out with his sword. He knocked the shaft aside and thrust in, hewing at the Kazaki's neck. The guard intercepted the blow with his shield and suddenly rammed it forward. The murderous spike on its boss thudded against the terrestrial's broad chest, and the linked rings gave under that blow. Just a little, just enough to draw blood. Ants roared and chopped down across the other's right arm. The Kazaki howled his pain and stumbled back. Another was on the earthling like a spitting cat. Swords hummed and clashed together. Leaping and dodging, the Kazaki lashed out with the blade like a flickering flame, and none of Ansa's blows could land on him. The Kazaki leaped in suddenly, his edge reaching for the human's unprotected throat. Ants parried with his sword while his left fist shot out like an iron cannonball. It hit the native full in the face, with a crunching of splintering bones. The guard's head snapped back, and he fell to the blood-running street. Janicek was fighting two at once, his sword never resting. He leaped and danced like the shadow of a flame in the wind, and he was laughing, laughing. Ants hewed out, and one of the foeman's heads sprang from its neck. Janicek darted in. There was a blur of steel, and the other guardsmen toppled. Axe and sword, spear and dagger, and flying arrows. The fight rolled back and forth between the darkling walls of houses. It grew with time. Volaketch's patrols were drawn by the noise. Loyalists crouched in the hiding herd of the attack and sped to join it. Ants and Janicek fought side by side, human brawn and Kazaki swiftness, and the corpses were heaped where they went. A pike raked Ants's hand. He dropped his sword, and the enemy leaped in with drawn knife. Ants did not reach for his own, Dirk. No human had a chance in a knife fight with a Kazaki. But his arms snaked out, his hands closed on the native's waist, and he lifted the enemy up and hurled him against another. They both went down in a crash of denting armor and snapping bones. Ants roared his war cry, and picked up his sword again. Janicek leaped and darted and fenced, grinning as he fought, demon lights in his yellow eyes. A spear was hurled at him. He picked it out of the air, one-handed, and threw it back, even as he fought another guardsman. The rebel took advantage of it to get in under Janicek's guard. Swifter than thought, the warrior's dagger was in his left hand and into the rebel's throat. Back and forth the battle swayed, roaring, trampling, and the rain mingled with blood between the cobblestones. Thunder of weapons, shrieking of wounded, shouting of challenges, lightning dancing overhead. Suddenly it was over. Ants looked up from his last victim and saw that the confusion no longer snarled around him. The street was heaped with dead and wounded, and a few individual battles were still going on. But the surviving guardsmen 
were in full flight, and the victorious warriors were shouting their triumph. That was a fight, panted Janicek. He quivered with feral eagerness. Now on to the castle. I think, said Slavatizek thoughtfully, that this was the decisive struggle as far as the city is concerned. Look at how many were involved. Almost all the patrols must have come here, and now they're beaten. We hold the city. Not much good to us while Voloketch is in the castle, said Ants. He need only sally forth with the earth weapons. He leaned on his sword, gasping great lungfuls of the cool, wet air into him. But where's Ellen? We've had heralds out shouting for her, as you suggested, said Slavatizek. Now that the city is in our control, she should come out. If not, then I know how to blow up the boat, said Gonzales Alonso bleakly, if we can get inside the citadel to do it. The loyalists were reassembling their forces. Warriors moved over the scene of battle, plundering dead guardsmen, cutting the throats of wounded enemies and badly mutilated friends. It was a small army that was crowding around Ants's tall form. His worried eyes probed into the dull gray light of the rainy dawn. Of a sudden, he stiffened and peered more closely. Someone was coming down the street, thrusting through the assembled warriors. Someone, someone, he knew that bright bronze hair, Ellen. He stood waiting, letting her come up to him, and his eyes were hungry. She was tall and full-bodied and supple, graceful, almost as a Kazaki, and her wide-set eyes were calm and gray under a broad, clear forehead, and there was a dusting of freckles over her straight nose, and her mouth was wide and strong and generous, and Ellen, he said wonderingly, Ellen, what are you doing? she asked. What have you planned? No question of how he was. No look at the blood trickling along his sides and splashed over his face and arms. Well, where were you? he asked, and cursed himself for not being able to think of a better greeting. I hid with the family of Azakagar, she said. I lay in their loft when the patrolman came searching for me. Then I heard your heralds going through the streets, calling on me to come out in your name. So I came. How did you know it wasn't a trick of Olaketch's? asked someone. I told the heralds to use my name and add after it, well, something that only she and I knew, said Ants uncomfortably. Janicek remained impassive, but he recalled that the phrase had been Dougal Anson, who once told you something on a sunny day down by Zamanui River. He could guess what the something had been. Well, it seemed to happen to all Earthmen sooner or later, and it meant the end of the old unregenerate days. He sighed a little wistfully. But what did you want me for? asked Ellen. She stood before Ants in her short, close-fitting tunic, the raindrops glittering in her heavy coppery hair, and he thought wryly that the question was in one sense superfluous, but in another sense, and with time so desperately short, you're the only one of us who can plot a course for the rocket, he said. Alonzo here, or almost anyone, 
should be able to pilot it, but you're the only one who can take it to the starship. So that, of course, is why Carson and Volokhetch were after you, and why we had to have you too. If we can get into the Citadel, capture the rocket, and get up to the starship, it'll be easy to overthrow Volokhetch. But if he gets there first, Al-Kazak couldn't win against him. She nodded, slowly and wearily. Her gray eyes were haunted. I wonder if it matters who gets there, she said. I wonder why we're fighting and killing each other. Over who shall sit on the throne of an obscure city-state on an insignificant planet? Over the exact disposition to be made of one little spaceship? It isn't worth it. She looked around at the sprawled corpses, lying on the bloody cobblestones, with rain falling in their gaping mouths, and shuddered. It isn't worth that. There's more to it than that, said Janizek bleakly. Macefield Carson and his friend, his puppet, I think, Volokhetch, would use the ship to bring all the world under their rule. Then they would mold it into a pattern suited for conquering a small empire among the neighboring stars. Volokhetch always talked that way, before his first revolution, said Ellen. And Kars used to say, but that can't be right. He can't have meant it. And even if he did, what of it? Is it worth enough for brothers to slay each other over? Yes, Janicek's voice was pitiless. Shall the freemen of Kazakh become the regimented hordes of a tyrant? Let all this world be blown asunder first. Shall the innocent folk of the other stars become his victims? urged Alonzo. Shall Kazakh become a menace to the galaxy, one which must be destroyed, or must itself destroy? Shall there be war with Earth herself? To Shantuzik with that, growled Ants. These are our enemies to be fought and beaten. Out there is the great civilization of the galaxy, and they would keep us from it for generations yet, and make it in the end, our foe. And Volokhetch is a murderer with no right to the throne of Krakenau. I say, let's get at his liver. Well, Ellen looked away. When she turned back, there was torment in her eyes. But her voice was low and steady. I'm with you in whatever you plan, but on one condition. Kars is not to be harmed. Not harmed? exploded Janicek. Why, that dirty traitor deserves... He is still my brother, said Ellen. When Volokhetch is beaten, he will not be able to do any more harm, and he will see that he was wrong. Her eyes flash coldly. Whoever hurts Kars will have me for blood enemy. As you will, shrugged Ants, trying to hide the pain in his heart. But now our plan is to storm the citadel. We can't hope to take it, but we'll keep the garrison busy. Meanwhile, a few of us break in, get the rocket, and take it back out here, where you will have an orbit plotted. I can't make one that quickly, and who can pilot it well enough to land it here without cracking it up? They looked at each other, and then eyes turned to Gonzales Alonso. He smiled mirthlessly. I can try, he said. But I'm only an engineer, 
I never imagined I'd have to fly the thing. Chang Ching Wei was supposed to be the pilot, but he's a prisoner now. If we smash the rocket, well, then we smash it, said Ants heavily. It'll mean a long and hard war against Volaketch from outside, and he'll have all the advantages of the new weapons. We may never overthrow him before he gets another boat built. Still, we'll just have to try. Ellen said quietly, I can pilot it. You? Of course, I've been working on the second boat from the beginning. I know it as well as anyone, every seam and rivet and wiring diagram. I was aboard when Chang took her on a practice run only a few days ago. I'll fly it for you. You can't. We have to fight our way into the castle itself, the very heart of Volaketch's power. You'd be killed. It's the best chance. If you think we can get in it at all, I stand as good a chance of living through it as anyone else. She's right, said Janicek. And while we waste time here arguing, the Citadel is getting ready. Come on. Automatically, Ants broke into movement, trotting along beside Janicek, and the army formed its ranks and followed them. He had time for a few hurried words with Ellen, whispered as they went up the hill, Stay close by me. There'll be a small group of us getting in, picked fighters, and we'll make a ring about you. Of course, she nodded. Her gray eyes shone, and she was breathing quickly. I begin to see why you were a rover all those years, Ants. It's mad and desperate and terrible. But before Cosmos, we're alive. Most recruits are frightened green before their first battle, he said. You have a warrior's heart, Ellen. He broke off, hearing the banality of his own words. Listen, my dearest, he said then quickly. We may not come alive through all this, but remember what I did say down by the river that day. I love you. She was silent. He went on, fumbling for words. You wouldn't answer me then. I thought it was just your usual talk to women. It may have been then, he admitted. But it hasn't been since, and it isn't now. His sword-calloused hand found hers. Don't forget, Ellen. I love you. I will always love you. Ants, she turned toward him, and he saw her eyes alight. Ants, a bugle shrilled through the rain, high and harsh ahead of them. Dimly, they made out the monstrous bulk of the castle, looming through the misty gray light, its towers lost in the vague sky. Janicek's sword flashed from its sheath. The battle begins, said a voice out of the blurring rain. Ants drew Ellen over against a wall and kissed her. Her lips were cool and firm under his, wet with rain. He would never forget that kiss while life was in him. They looked at each other for a moment of wonder and then broke apart and followed Janicek. The loyalists charged in a living wave that roared as it surfed against the castle walls and spattered a foam of blood and steel. From three sides they came, weaving in and out of the hailing arrows, lifting shields above them, leaving their dead behind them. 
The blaster cannon, mounted on the walls, spouted flame and thunder. Warriors were mowed down before that whirling white fury. Armor melted when the lightning-like discharges played over it, but still the assault went on with all the grim, bitter courage of the Kazaki race. Old siege engines were appearing, dragged out of storehouses and hiding places where they had been kept against such a day of need. Now the great catapults and ballistae were mounted. Stones and fireballs and iron-heated bolts were raking the walls. A testudu moved awkwardly forth up the steep hill toward the gates. It was blasted to flaming molten ruin. But another got underneath the walls, and the crash of a battering ram came from under its roof. Shadow-like in the blinding rain, the warriors flitted up toward the walls. No spot of cover was too small for one of these ghostly shapes. They seemed to carry their own invisibility with them. Under the walls, scaling ladders appearing as if out of nowhere, up the walls and into the castle. The ladders were hurled down. The warriors who gained the walls were blasted by cannon, cut down by superior numbers, lost in a swirl of battle and death. Boiling water rained down over the walls of those below, spears and arrows and roaring blaster bolts. But still they came. Still the howling, screeching demons of Krakenau came, and died, and came again. Ants cursed, softly, luridly, pain croaking in his voice. We can't be with them. They're being slaughtered, and we can't be with them. We're needed worse here, said Janice curtly. If only Pragaketch can maintain the assault for an hour. He and Ants loped in the forefront. Behind them came Gonzales, Ellen, and a dozen picked young Kazaki. They wove through a maze of alleys and streets and deserted market squares, working around behind the castle. The roar of battle came to them out of the gray mist of rain. Otherwise, there was only the padding and splashing of their own feet, the breath rasping harsh in their lungs, the faint clank and jingle of their harness. All Krakenau, not at the storming of the citadel, had withdrawn into the mysterious shells of the houses, lay watching and waiting and wetting knives in the dark. The paths dipped steeply downward, until, when they came around behind the citadel and stood peering out of a tunnel-like alley, there was a sheer cliff face before them. On this side, the castle was impregnable. The only approach was a knife-edged trail winding up the cliff, barely wide enough for one man at a time. At its top, flushed with the precipice edge, the wall was built. Against this wall, commanding the trail, there had in the old days been an archer post, but lately a cannon had been mounted there. Yet that very security, thought Ants, might be a weakness. Except for that gun... The approach wouldn't be watched, especially with the fight going on elsewhere. So, give me your weapon, Alonzo, said Janicek. Here, Gonzales handed him the blaster pistol, but it only has two charges left in it. That may be enough. Janicek slipped it under his cloak. Then he wound a gold brassard about his arm 
and started up the trail. A couple of his Kazaki came behind him, then Ants, Ellen, and Alonzo, and finally the rest of the warriors. The trail was steep and slippery, water swirling down it, loose rocks moving uneasily beneath the feet, and it was a dizzying drop off the sheer edge to the ground below. They wound upward slowly, panting, cursing, wondering how much of a chance their desperate scheme really had. Ellen slipped a little. Ants reached back and caught her hand. He smiled lopsidedly. Now I don't want to let go, he said. I wonder, Ellen looked away, then back to him, and her eyes were wide and puzzled. I wonder if I want you too, Ants. His heart seemed to jump up into his throat, but he let her go and said wryly, I'm afraid I have to right now, but wait till later. Up and up, later. Will there ever be a later? And if there is, what then? I'm still more than half a Kazaki. Can we live together in the great civilization I hardly comprehend? It was simpler when Janicek and I were warring over the planet. Janicek. I wonder if two beings of the same race could ever know as close a friendship as that between us two aliens. We've fought and laughed and sung together. We've saved each other's lives, sweated and suffered and been afraid together. We know each other as we will never know any other being. Well, it passes. We'll always remain close friends, I suppose. But the old comradeship, I'll have to give that up. But Ellen. Up and up. Janicek whistled long and loud and called, Hail Volaketch, friends! He could dimly see the looming bulk of the blaster cannon, crouched behind its iron shield. Above it, the walls of the castle were high and dark and empty. The voice came from ahead of him, taut with nervousness, who goes there? A friend. I have a message for his highness. Janicek moved forward almost casually. His eyes gleamed with mirth. It tickled his heart, this dicing with death. Some day he'd overreach himself, and that would be the end. But until then, he was having fun. Advance. No, no one else. Just you alone. Janicek sauntered forward till he stood only a meter from the blunt, ugly muzzle. He had his left arm out of his cloak so that the golden brassard shone in plain view. Underneath his right hand thumbed the catch of Alonzo's pistol. Who are you? challenged the voice from behind the shield. A messenger for his highness from his allies in Volgazan, said Janicek. Seeing that there was still fighting going on, I and my men decided to come in the back way. Well, I suppose I can let you in under guard, but your men will have to stay out here. Very well, Janicek strolled over behind the shield. There were three warriors crouched there, in front of a small door in the wall. One of them was about to blow his trumpet for a guard detail. The other two poised their spears near Janicek's throat. None of them thought that anyone outside the citadel might possess an earth weapon. Janicek shot right through his cloak. In that narrow space, the ravenous discharge blinded and blistered him. 
stung his face with flying particles of molten iron. The hammer blow of concussion sent him reeling back against the wall. His cloak caught a fire. He ripped it off and flung it down on the three blackened corpses before him. A vision returned to his dazzled eyes. These earth weapons were hideous things, he thought. They made nothing of courage or strength or even cunning. He wondered what changes galactic civilization would bring to old Kazak, and didn't think he'd like most of them. Maybe Volokhetch was right. But Ants was his comrade, and Elegan had been his king. He whistled, and the others came running up. Quick, rasped Janicek. The noise may draw somebody. Quick, inside. Can't we swing this lightning thrower around and blast them? wondered a Kazaki. No, it's fixed in place. Ants threw his brawny shoulders against the solid mass of the door. It swung ponderously back, and they dashed through the tunnel and the thick wall, out into the open courtyard of the castle. The noises of the fight rose high from here, but there were only a few warriors in sight, scurrying back and forth on their errands without noticing the newcomers, a fact which did not surprise Ants or Janizek, who knew what vast confusion a battle was. The human remembered the layout now. The rocket would be over by the machine shops, near the Donjon Keep. This way. They trotted across the court, around the gray stone bulk of the citadel's buildings and towers, toward the long wooden shed which housed the new machine shop. The rain was beginning to slacken now, and the sun was up behind its gray veil, so that there was light shining through slanting silver. Against the dark walls, the lean torpedo shape of the rocket boat gleamed like a polished spearhead. Now, ahead! Janicek broke into a run toward the boat, and they followed him in a close ring about Ellen. A band of fighters came around the corner of the machine shop in front of the rocket. The wet light shone off their brassards. Janicek swore bitterly, and his hand dropped to a sword. One of the enemy warriors let out a yell. Earthlings, two, three of them, not ours! The blaster crashed in Janizik's hand, and five dropped their charred bodies on the ground. With a spine-shivering yell, Janicek bounded forward, and after him came Ants, Alonzo, and a round dozen of the fiercest fighters in Krakenau. The blaster was exhausted now, but they had their swords. The leader of the enemy band was a huge Kazaki, dark-furred and green-eyed. His men were scattering in panic, but he roared a bull-voice command, and they rallied about him and stood before the rocket. Volokhetch, by all the thirteen hells, Volokhetch! He must have been leading reinforcements to a threatened point on the wall, thought Ants in a fleeting moment, and his sharp mind had instantly deduced that the invaders were after the rocket and that they could have no more blaster charges, or they would be using them. And Volokhetch's band was still larger than theirs, and he had all the forces of the citadel behind him if he could summon them. The two bands crashed together, and steel began to fly. Ants stood before Ellen and lashed out 
at a spitting Kazaki who reached for his belly with the sword. The enemy dodged past his guard, drilled in close. Ellen shouted and kicked at the native's ankles. He stumbled, dropping his defense, and ants clove his skull. Volaketch roared. He swung a huge battle axe, and its shock and thunder rose high over the swaying tide of battle. Two of Janicek's men leaped at him. He swept the axe in a terrible arc, and the spike cracked one pate, and the edge split the other's face open. Alonzo sprang at him, with furious courage, wielding a sword. Volaketch knocked it, spinning from his hand, but before he could kill the engineer, Ants was on him. They traded blows in a clamor of steel. Axe and sword clashed together, sheared along chainmail and rang on helmets. It was a blur of rake and slash and parry, with Volaketch grinning at him behind a network of whirling steel. Ants gathered the strength and pressed forward with reckless fury. His sword hummed and whistled and roared against Volaketch's hard-held guard. He laid open arms, legs, cheek. He probed and lunged for the rebel king's trunk. Volaketch snarled, but step by step he was driven back. Warriors fell, but it was on the bodies of foemen, and even dying they stabbed upward at the enemy. Bitter, bloody, utterly ruthless, the struggle swayed about the rocket ship. It was old Kazak that fought, the planet of warriors, and even as they hewed and danced and slew, Janicek thought bleakly that he was trying to end the gory magnificence of that age. He was bringing civilization, and with it the doom of his own kind. Kazak of the future would not be the same world. If they won, if they won, to me, he yelled, to me, men of Allegan, hi, Allegan, Krakenau, Dugald. They heard and rallied round him, the last gasping survivors of his band, but there were very few of Volaketch's men left, few. Volaketch, aid the king. To me, men of Volaketch, the rebel shouted at the top of his lungs, and ants lunged in at him, beating against the swift armor of the axe. Ants! Janicek's urgent shout cut through the clangor of battle. Ants, here, were blasting free. The human hardly heard him. He forced his way closer in against Volaketch, his sword whistling about the usurper's helmeted head. Ants! shouted Janicek. Ants! Ellen needs you! With a tiger snarl, Ants broke free from his opponent and whirled about. A rebel stood before him. There was an instant of violence too swift to be followed, and Ants leaped over the ripped body and up to Janicek. The Kazaki stood by the airlock. There was a ring of corpses before him. His sword ran blood. Ellen, gasped Ants. Ellen, inside, rasped Janicek. She's inside. We have to get out of here. Only way to get your attention. Come on. Ant saw the armed bands swarming at them from one of the outer towers, defenders who had finally noticed the battle at the rocket and were coming to aid their king. Not a chance against them except the boat. Man and Kazaki stepped back into the airlock. 
A storm of arrows and javelins broke loose. Ant saw two of his men fall. Then Janicek had slammed the heavy outer valve and dogged it shut. Ellen, he gasped. Ellen, take the boat up before they dynamite it. The girl nodded. She was strapping herself into the pilot's seat before the gleaming control panel. Only Alonzo was there with her, bleeding but still on his feet. Four of them survived, only four, but they had the boat. Through the viewport, Ant saw the attackers surging around the hull. They'd used ballastay to crush it, dynamite to blow it up, blaster cannon to fry them alive inside the metal shell, unless they got it into the sky first. Take the engines, Alonzo, said Ellen. Gonzales Alonzo nodded. You help me, Janicek, he said. I'm not sure I can stay conscious. The pilot room was in the bows. Behind it, bulkheaded off, lay the air plant and the other mechanisms for maintaining life aboard. Not very extensive, for the boat wouldn't be in space long. Amidships were the controlled gyros, and behind still another bulkhead, the engine controls. Rather than install an elaborate automatic feed system, the builders had relied on manual controls, acting on light signals flashed by the pilot. It was less efficient, but it had shortened the labor of constructing the vessel and was good enough for the mere hop it had to make. I don't know anything about it, said Janicek doubtfully. I'll tell you what to do. Help me. Leaning on the Kazaki's arm, Alonzo stumbled toward the stern. Ant strapped his big body into the chair beside Ellen's. I can't help much, I'm afraid, he said. No, except by being here. She smiled. Looking out, he saw that the assault on the castle was almost over, beaten off. It had provided the diversion they needed, but at what cost? At what cost? We might as well take off for the starship right away, he said. Of course, and that will end the war. Volokhetch can either surrender or sit in the castle till he rots. Or we can use the ship to blast the citadel. No, oh, Cosmos, no. Her eyes were filled with sudden horror. Why not? he argued angrily. Only way we can rescue our people if he won't give them up of his own will. We might kill Kars she whispered. It was on his tongue to snap good riddance, but he choked down the impulse. Why do you care for him that much? He's my brother, she said simply, and he realized that in spite of her civilized protestations, Ellen was sufficiently Kazaki to feel the primitive, unreasoning clan loyalty of the planet. She added slowly, and when father died years ago, Kars took his place. He's been both father and big brother to me. He may have some wrong ideas, but he's always been so good. A child's worship of the talented, handsome, genial elder brother, and she had never really outgrown it. Well, it didn't matter. Once they had the starship, Kars didn't matter. He'll be as safe as anyone can be in these days, said Ants. I'll, I'll protect him myself if need be. Her hand slid into his, and she kissed him. There in the little boat, while it rocked and roared under the furious assaults from without.
Anyone who hurts Kars is my blood foe, she breathed. But anyone who helps him helps me. And, and, Ant smiled dreamily. The engines began to stutter, warming up, and Volaketch's men scattered in dismay. They had seen the fire that spurted from the rocket tubes. And in the engine room, Macefield Carson held his blaster leveled on Alonzo and Janicek. Go ahead, he smiled. Go ahead, take the ship up. The Kazaki swore lividly. His sword seemed almost to leap halfway out of the scabbard. Kars swung the blaster warningly, and he clashed the weapon back. Useless, useless, when white flame could destroy him before he got moving. How did you get here? he snarled. The tall, bronze-haired man smiled again. I wasn't in the fight, he said. Volaketch wanted to save my knowledge and told me to stay out of the battle. I wasn't really needed, but it occurred to me that your assault was obviously a futile gesture, unless you hoped in some way to capture the boat. So I hid in here to guard it, just in case. And now we'll take her up. We may just as well do so. Once I have the starship, he gestured at Alonzo, start the engines and no tricks. I understand them as well as you do. Gonzalez strapped himself in place and stood swaying with weakness while he manipulated the controls. I can't reach that wheel, he gasped. Turn it, Janicek, said Kars. About a quarter turn. That's enough. The impassive faces of meters wavered and blurred before Alonzo's swimming eyes. He had been pretty badly hurt, but the engines were warming up. Strap yourself in, Janicek, said Kars. The Kazaki obeyed, sickly. He didn't really need the anti-acceleration webbing. Kars himself was content to hang on to the stanchion with one hand, but it would hamper his movements. He would have no way of making a sudden leap. Between them, he and Alonzo could handle the engines readily enough, Kars giving them their orders. Then, once they were at the starship, he could blast them down, go out to capture Ants and Ellen, and the old books said one man could handle the ship if necessary. How to warn the two in the pilot room? How to get help? The warrior's brain began to turn over, cool and steady now, swift as chilled lightning. The boat spouted flame, stood on its tail, and climbed for the sky. Acceleration dragged at Kars, but it wasn't too great for a strong man to resist. Kars tightened his grip on the stanchion. His blaster was steady on them. Ellen's signal lights blinked and blinked on the control panels. More on the number three jet. Ease to port. Full ahead. Cut number two. Alonzo handled most of it, occasionally gasping a command to Janicek. The bellow of the rockets filled the engine room. And in the bows, Dougal Anson saw the world reel and fall behind. Saw the rainy sky open up in a sudden magnificence of sun. Saw it slowly darken and the stars come awesomely out. Gods, gods, was this space? Open space? No wonder the old people had longed to get away. How to get help? How to warn ants? 
Janicek's mind spun like an unloaded engine, spewing forth plan after unusable plan, quickly now, by Shantuzik's hells. No way out, and the minutes were fleeing. The rocket was reaching for the sky. He knew they were nearing the starship, and still he lay in his harness like a sheep and obeyed Carse's gunpoint orders. The disgrace of it. He snarled his anger, and at Alonzo's gasped command, swung the wheel with unnecessary savagery. The ship lurched as a rocket tube overfired. Carse nearly lost his hold, and for an instant, Janicek's hands were at the acceleration webbing, ready to fling it off and leap at him. The man recovered, and his blaster came to the ready again. He had to shout to be heard above the thundering jets. Don't try that, either of you. I can shoot you down and handle it myself if I must. He laughed then, a tall and splendid figure, standing strained against the brutal, clawing acceleration. Ellen's brother, aye, and one could see why she wanted him spared. Janicek's lip curled back from his teeth in a snarl of hate. The rocket must be very near escape velocity now. Presently, Ellen would signal for the jets to be turned off, and they would rush weightless through space while she took her readings and plotted the orbit that would get them to the starship. And if then Kars emerged with his blaster, Ants had only a sword. But Ants is Ants, thought Janicek. If there is any faintest glimmer of a chance, Ants will find it. And if not, we're really no worse off than now. I'll have to warn Ants and leave the rest up to him. The Kazaki nodded bleakly to himself. It would probably mean his own death before Kars's blaster flame. And damn it, damn it, he liked living. Even if the old Kazaki knew were doomed, there had been many new worlds of the galactic frontier. He and Ants had often dreamed of roving over them. However, a red light blinked on the panel. Ellen's signal to cut the rockets. They were at escape velocity. Wearily, his hand shaking, Alonzo threw the master switch. The sudden silence was like a thunderclap. And Janicek screeched the old Krakenowie danger call from his fullest lungs. Karst turned around with a curse, awkward in the sickening zero gravity of freefall. It won't do you any good, he yelled thickly. I'll kill him too. Alonzo threw the master switch up. With a coughing roar, the rockets burst back into life. No longer holding the stanchion, Kars was hurled to the floor. Janicek clawed at the webbing to get free. Kars leveled his blaster on Alonzo. The engineer threw another switch at random, and the direction of acceleration shifted with sudden violence, slamming Kars against the farther wall. His blaster raved, and Alonzo had no time to scream before the flame licked about him. And in the control room answered Janicek's high, ululating yell. The reflexes of the wandering years came back to galvanize him. His sword seemed to leap into his hand. He flung himself out of his chair, webbing with a shout. Ants! Ellen's voice came dimly to his ears, hardly noticed. Ants, what is it? He drifted weightless in midair, cursing, 
trying to swim. And then the rockets woke up again and threw him against the floor. He twisted with Kazaki agility, landed crouched, and bounded for the stern. Ellen looked after him, gasping, for an instant yet unaware of the catastrophe. Thinking how little she knew that yellow man savage after all, and how she would like to learn, and the rocket veered crazily. Ants caught himself as he fell, adjusted to the new direction of gravity, and continued his plunging run. The crash of a blaster came from ahead of him. He burst into the control room and saw it in one blinding instant, Alonzo's charred body sagging in its harness, Janicek half out of his, Karst staggering to his feet. The blaster turned on Janicek, Janicek, the finger tightening. Tiger-like, Ant sprang. Karst glimpsed him, turned. The blaster half swung about, and the murderous fighting machine, which was Dougal Anson, had reached him. Karst saw the sword shrieking against his face. It was the last thing he ever saw. Ants lurched back against the control panel. Turn it off, yelled Janicek. Throw that big switch there. Mechanically, the human obeyed, and there was silence again, a deep, ringing silence in which they floated free. It felt like an endless falling. Falling, falling. Ants looked numbly down at his bloody sword. Falling, falling, falling. But that couldn't be right, he thought dully. He had already fallen. He had killed Ellen's brother. And I love her, he whispered. Janicek drifted over, slowly in the silent room. His eyes were a deep gold, searching now. If Ellen won't have him, he and I will go out together, out to the stars and the great new frontier. But if she will, I'll have to go alone. I'll always be alone. Unless she would come too. She's a good kid. I'd like to have her along. Maybe take a mate of my own, too. But that can never be, now. She won't come near her brother's slayer. You might not have had to kill him, said Janicek. Maybe you could have disarmed him. Not before he got one of us, probably you, said Ants tonelessly. Anyway, he needed killing. He shot Alonzo. He added after a moment, a man has to stand by his comrades. Janicek nodded. Very slowly. Give me your sword, he said. Eh? Ants looked at him. The blue eyes were unseen, blind with pain. But he handed over the red weapon. Janicek slipped his own glaive into the human's fingers. Then he laid a hand on Ants's shoulder and smiled at him, and then looked away. We Kazaki don't know love. There is comradeship deeper than any earthling knows. When it happens between male and female, they are mates. When it is between male and male, they are blood brothers. And a man must stand by his comrades. Ellen came in, pulling her way along the walls by the handholds. And Ants looked at her without saying a word, just looking. What happened, she said. What is the... Oh. Carse's body floated in midair, turning over and over in air currents like a drowned man in the sea. Carse! Carse! Ellen pushed from the wall over to the dead man. She looked at his still face and stroked his blood-matted hair and smiled through a mist of tears.
You were always good to me, Kars, she whispered. You were, good night, brother, good night. Then turning to Anson Janicek, with something cold and terrible in her voice, who killed him? Ants looked at her dumbly. I did, said Janicek. He held forth the dripping sword. He stowed away, was going to take over the ship. Alonzo threw him off balance by turning the rockets back on. He killed Alonzo. Then I killed him. He needed it. He was a traitor and a murderer, Ellen. He was my brother, she whispered. And suddenly she was sobbing in Anse's arms. Great racking sobs that seemed to tear her slender body apart. But she'd get over it. Anse looked at Janicek over her shoulder, and while he ruffled her shining hair, his eyes locked with the Kazakis. This is the end. Once we land, we can never see each other, not ever again. And we were comrades in the old days. Farewell, my brother. When the starship landed outside Krakenau's surrendered citadel, it was still raining a little. Janicek looked out at the wet, gray world and shivered. Then wordlessly, he stepped from the airlock and walked slowly down the hill toward the sea. He did not look back, and ants did not look after him. End of Section 6 Recording by Paul Harvey End of Starship by Paul William Anderson Hi, I'm Jesse. Hello, I'm Paul. And I'm Scott. And we're going to talk about... Starship by Poole Anderson. This is first published in Planet Stories, Fall 1950. The description therein on the copyright page, the table of contents, is The strangest space castaways of all. The Terran explorers left their great interstellar ship unmanned in a tight orbit around Kazakh. Descended all of them in a lifeboat to investigate that alien, weirdly medieval world, and the lifeboat cracked up. As in, <laughs> as in crashed. <laughs> so I'm, I'm that I've funny, s- you know. So in 1950, and the lifeboat cracked up, definitely meant that it broke, right? Yeah. And we, rather and, than, but but if that was today, we could uh, assume that it was an AI that yes. rebelled against them. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, I've seen this episode of Voyager. It's okay. <laughs> it it's basically it's happens every episode. Of Voyager, uh-huh. they crash on a planet, yeah. and they're. Shuttle. Well, I mean, I mean, there was also an Enterprise episode. Um, now that's all this, simulation, Paul. Yeah, I know. Thanks, thanks to Riker. Thanks, thanks to Riker. In the last episode, don't say I'm not bitter, listeners. I'm bitter about the last episode of Enterprise. Don't. Act. You just spoiled it for the entire <laughs> world, Paul. Um, give it, give it how you feel about spoilers, Jesse. I don't care for a change. Wow. Well, this is this is Paul on the second shot of this vaccine and unleashed. Right. Unleashed Paul. It's radically changed him. Apparently there's so, some, something else in that vaccine other than but, vaccine. But, but I mean um, but usually these episodes of, of Voyager of original Star Trek of Enterprise, etc., usually they get off the they get off the planet in a few weeks or months. Here here they're on for a couple of generations. The closest one in those TV series that this comes to is the Paradise Syndrome, where Kirk is on a planet for like a year. Mm, mm-hmm. Remember, and, and and they're trying to stop the the, the Commodore asteroid from hitting the planet. And unfortunately, that episode was canceled because it it has him in red face. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 
Unfortunately, that episode does not have good depictions of Native Americans, so yeah. It's a good but episode, as far as I re- recall it, but it's been cancelled, so nobody but should my, be ever but, allowed but, to see but, it but again. The modern version of this story is a gigantic and very successful series by C.J. Cherry called The Foreigner Series, where she's got 12 novels basically doing what this story does in, in 90 minutes. <laughs> 90 minutes. So she's she, she spun, she spun out this tight this tight, fast story of Paul Anderson's into a gigantic, never-ending series. And I like C.J. Cherry's stuff, but this is, seems all she, she writes anymore, which kind of disappoints me a bit, if that makes any sense. <laughs> what I she can, can tell you is that this is... Some, I have not read any of those, but so Foreigner is about um, a, some it, people getting stranded and, and then living generations. Yeah. And and, 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 and and they have they have interesting relations with the with the natives as far as language and trying to understand them as as quote unquote people, but they have a very different psychology. It's 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 a fascinating series, but it does kind it is kind of it does go over generations. It is kind of padded compared to this. I mean, this is the lean and mean version of the foreigner story. Interesting. <laughs> no, notice um, the the backstory. Is all in here, right? We get that mm-hmm. they've been on there for two generations. We find out after uh, uh, pretty pretty close to the near the end. I was I was very surprised to learn that the uh, starship was capable of landing in the first place. So it is a Voyager mm-hmm. episode. It's it, it's a two part Voyager episode. So forty five minutes plus forty five minutes equals ninety, 90. minutes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and We've seen this episode uh, in Next Generation. It's also an Orville episode where they land on a planet, right? <laughs> land on a planet, somehow get stuck there, and for whatever reason, um, time works differently down there, right? And so they spin at a faster rate, and one member of the crew uh, spends three seconds down there uh, from the... Voyager's point of view and the actual time spent down there is three years, right? That's 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 also a bit of Interstellar, the movie as well. well I, I just want to point out that that's the episode of Voyager I watched last night. Okay. It's called Blink of an Eye, <laughs> um, and that's also uh, Dragon's Egg by Robert L. Forward, which we did on this show. Um, it's also the, an the, Orville episode called Mad Idolatry. Right, and um, those are all. Throwing Sand Kings on this too. Well, Sand Kings is not exactly the same. I mean, yeah, but 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 the civilization that the guys, the guys working with, is at an accelerated rate compared to the rest of the world. Yeah, so, so I would I, I I thought a little bit about that, um, but I think that that's much more closely connected to uh, Ted Sturgeon's. Um, uh, microcosmic Cos- god exactly the one when i was thinking of microcosmic god and and so we we can have accelerated rate versus accelerated time right but in in, in any case paul anderson just dispenses with all the like here we are crashing here we are investigating here we are getting to know the natives and the whole thing is three generations later uh, somebody was taught how to be an astrogator. They finally get their shit together with rockets enough to get back up to the spaceship. And it turns out all they needed was like a remote control, like on, uh, <laughs> aliens, a- aliens, right? When they, they crash their drop ship and they actually leave everybody, uh, leaves in the drop ship. Nobody stays behind. Um, 
the only problem is getting a message up to the the orbiting Sulaco. So uh, the android has to crawl through some tunnels, <laughs> right, to get to the uplink station so he can communicate to send down another dropship. But yeah, it, it, a lot of can could have been solved by just leaving somebody up there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, Their away mission right. included the entire crew. Wow. That's why captain, we left Michael Collins in the in the orbiter it, when indeed. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin went down. <laughs> indeed, you got to leave Michael Collins up there. Indeed, Michael Collins is is more important than we ever knew. Yes. There's, there's another Voyager episode where they are doing the same thing on Mars, and the guy gets picked up by some subspace vortex or something and ends up in the delta quadrant um but yeah he was in orbit around because you can make you know your plans better if you have your people with your equipment right so uh i think that you know the explanation for why the ship cracked up in the first place and it says something like one in a billion chance i mean have they not seen all the Voyager episodes? <laughs> I, one uh, ion storm, one mm-hmm. ion storm, or one atmosphere. Well, you mm-hmm. say wrong timeline, Paul, but actually, it's this is actually um, what Heinlein did. But Paul Anderson's yeah. even better. Uh, yeah, I was going to mention that. I, I actually have this story. I have a three-volume set from Bain Books. Mm-hmm. Called the Complete Psychotechnic League. Yes, we talked about that. Right, yeah. and this is the last story in Volume Two. Um, now he didn't write these stories in any kind of a chronological order, but so this was one of the first ones. I, I looked it up; it's one of the first ones. It's actually the third and, story. And, 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 the, and the the Psychotechnic League, I should uh, I should clarify for listeners, is different than his Technic League, which is a different one. That's the one. The Technic League is the one with. Uh, Ben Ringe and Ensign Flandry and all that stuff. The Psychotechnic League is a different future history because Anderson could be content with just one. It's a much more egalitarian, I guess is the right word, egalitarian future history with a, a lot more interesting, different things going on. Well, yeah. I want to I want to tell you a both. lot looser, a lot looser because I mean the the, the Psychotechnic League doesn't even get mentioned in this story at all. In in that name, it's very it's a very loose yeah, the Galactic civilizations out there somewhere. Whereas, yeah, I, yeah, I, I was noting that uh, it looks like the the word psychotechnic league as the set of stories came later. Yeah, says, yeah. let me tell you guys the about name this. Psychotechnic okay. league was coined by Sandra Meisel in the early 1980s. That's a Wikipedia entry. Uh, now, now I will direct Maine, you to yeah. the chat, okay? Because because I have all this for you. Um, so it was originally called the Future History. This is from mm-hmm. uh, Startling Stories, Winter 1955, published with a, the what was then the last story in this future history. Mm-hmm. Um, and it says, the editorial introduction says, Back in the early 1940s, Robert A. Heinlein let it be known that he was writing stories according to a consistent, quote-unquote, future history. All of his work fitted into a pattern of history as it might happen. An outline of that history was published so that readers could see the stories in perspective. Paul Anderson, who wrote the lead novel in this issue, which uh, I believe is called uh, The Snows of Ganymede, uh, yeah, uh, who wrote the lead novel in this issue, also uses such a history, and we're happy to publish part of it here. Anderson emphasizes two points about his history. A, 
This is only a bare outline of a much more complex thing. B, the dates given are not to be taken too seriously, for that would take the scheme out of the range of science fiction prediction and into the realm of fantasy and prophecy, which is not one I care to inhabit. And then it says... He hasn't tried to make all of his stories conform to the scheme and has no, no wish to do so, so that the Flandry stuff is not in this, right? Mm-hmm. But on right. the opposite page, you will find the first 250 years of Anderson's history, which closes with the action of The Snows of Ganymede. Other stories written, but not, uh, but which cannot be shown on the abbreviated chart. They didn't have the space on the page. The Troublemakers, 2205, that's the year it's supposed to be set. Gypsy. 2815 Starship 2875 The Starways which I've read uh 3120 Entity 3150 and Symmetry 3175 so that's uh the editorial introduction and on the next page you can see some of them are yet uh, as yet unwritten um so like for example Cold Victory near the bottom that wasn't published until the 80s but mm. he was part of his future history which he Later got changed to that psychotechnic league term. Right, yeah. because he wound up having to separate future history. Well, just to make like, it make it make sure that. Simple. But this this chart kind of reminds me of what's his name's uh, charts. Um, Oswald Spangler. You've read, you've seen Oswald Spangler's Decline in the West. I'm sure. I'm aware of it. Yes, show. it's a it's important for Lovecraft and Howard and that sort of thing. But right, so, so yeah, mm-hmm. that there's the same sort of. Or, 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 uh, more contemporarily, uh, what's his name? Uh, Benford, Toynbee. It's the same sort of chart. Right. Dates and how yeah. events and technology and sociology go through. But it's also uh, almost identical to the one that Heinlein does, right? The future history right. that you would get. Yeah. And he, I mean, they, they both got it from the, they got both got it from the same source. Right. So it's a, it's a fun idea. And notice, like, as you, uh, look at 20, between 2070 and 2100, We've got uh, Anthropoid Robot Invented, right, a technology. Mm-hmm. And then just a little after that, Anti-Robot Riots. So mm-hmm. yeah. I, I have mentioned before that Anderson was not the most um, optimistic and cheery science fiction writer ever invented. So, you know, it's like mm-hmm. I mean, he, he was kind of cynical. Like, yeah, you might invent one and then you're going to get a reaction. That's kind of his deal. Mm. Well, he, yeah, he, he had I'm, a nice historical view. You know, again, this you know, all these podcasts that we've done on Paul Anderson stuff has really been uh, me discovering this because mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, so this is my first read of any of these psychotechnically stories. But it says um, here that uh, the psycho psychodynamics was created in the war's aftermath, which. Um, so it says it branches off with the early death of Dwight D. Eisenhower, mm-hmm. and then Richard Nixon took over. And then there was a nuclear war in 1958. Don't forget socialism in the 50s. U.S. socialism. And then after that, after that, this science called psychodynamics is created. And like Asimov's psychohistory, psychodynamics can be used to predict and guide future course of social evolution. And then an organization called the Psychotechnic Institute is founded in the 70s that uses psychodynamics to influence government policy and popular attitudes with the goal of redirecting society toward greater rationality and an internationalism. Yeah, that's the foundation, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it, it's his own foundation except set on Earth. And, yeah, because Marius is like the first, because it's in parentheses here, but eventually did write, Marius is kind of like the first story in this entire entire world, and that's set after the, just after the, 
the nuclear war and how civilization is trying to put itself together and how do we put how do we put civilization together so we don't have another nuclear war is basically the, the story of Marius and it's a very dark story because it has to poses some uncomfortable questions about how you write how, uh, basically re- realism versus idealism in trying to construct society and it's a really fascinating story it's one of my favorites of this. And there's a paragraph right at the opening of the Psychotechnic League entry in Wikipedia that says, By the late 1950s, Anderson's political beliefs had altered to the point where he was uncomfortable with the political philosophy underlying the series, and he abandoned it. (laughs) In particular, he had completely reversed his earlier strong support for the United Nations as the nucleus of a world government, a stance which formed the main plot element of several earlier stories in the series. Yeah, and so so then write, start writing more uh, polio technically stories mm-hmm. instead, which is a much more cynical and less. Yeah, the UN is not a feature. You get the space merchants rising to power, they fall, and then you get a galactic emperor rising to power, and then it falls. Mm-hmm. The, cut, cut, the, the Oswald Spengler Twain B cycles of history is much more prevalent in the polio technic versus the psycho technically. Would you would you say that like Paul Anderson kind of. Was libertarian in his bent after he, this? He, or? Yeah, yeah. I would say. He, okay. I, I would say. I mean, he started off as more of an internationalist, as you can see in these stories, and then he switched to much more libertarian and uh, individualist sort of that sort of outlook as far as uh, as politics. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I want to uh, ask if you were reminded, other than Star Trek, of uh, any other um, stories. Because I, I had one in mind is like, oh, this is a reversal of one we've done. Well, Which I, one? The High Crusade. Yes, because he had the High Crusade, which is another Paul Anderson story, which we did on this yeah. podcast. Yeah. What, what came to my mind is something similar because of the, you know, there's guys running around with capes. They've got swords. There's blaster gun. I mean, mm. not it's like they didn't have personal blaster guns, but it's like they had cannons. And then um, they also had uh, siege engines, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and all this stuff. So, yeah, it felt medieval, but at the same time futuristic. And they're flying around, you know. So it, it was kind of reminding me of Jack Vance a little bit mm-hmm. in that all these elements are kind of mixed together where, you know, um, this isn't a thing where technology is magic or technology is so old they don't know where it came from and therefore no it's only three um, generations right right it's not it's not like that but just this mix of of all these elements you know of sort of a medieval mindset going on and um at the same time that there's a starship in orbit and all that stuff was it just reminded me of jack vance mm-hmm I get I get a little Vance from it, but I also think a lot of the yeah, like like the Dragon Masters, for example. Right, right. I, yeah. I also get a sense that a lot of the um, the things that work as world building are yeah, like most of these stories, like that I've read by Paul Anderson. It seems like most of the world building happened outside of the plot. Right, so what's nice is it's like reading Heinlein. You don't actually need to know that there's a future history there. He he knows it, so he has a plan. So he knows, like he can mention what's going on on Luna, or he can mention what's going on in Mars. Um, But that doesn't play into any particular plot, right? The fact that Friday is set in the same universe as 
as Farmer in the Sky doesn't matter, right? But it matters for the writer. So I, mm-hmm. I got the sense like the technology here and the um, attitude of the crew that came to this planet is needs to be set in the author's mind. But as a reader, you wouldn't pick up and necessarily know that this was part of a greater story. Right or a greater universe? Yeah, and that that's an interesting thing because I I found that with Paul Anderson, um, especially the science fiction, um, I often have to read his openings more than once mm-hmm. to get grounded in it, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. maybe that's why is it's just like he's he just starts where he starts, and um, he doesn't give us a character that doesn't know what's going on. You know, I mean that that trope yeah. where. You have somebody that's got amnesia or whatever, yep. or brand new to the world in some way, who gets to look around. We don't get any of that. So that's exactly often, what's often happening I in this one. Lost a little bit, yeah. Of course. Right, right. That, but I, I want to read this big, the opening for the readers just to show this. Like with sunset, there was rain. When Dougald Anderson brought his boat into Krakenau Harbor, there was only a vast wet darkness around him. He swore in a sulfurous mixture of Krakenau. Bolganazai and half a dozen other languages, including some spacemen's terrestrial, let down the sail. And just those several words we get, we get where, where it, we have a sailing thing, we have multiple cultures, and this guy is not bunked on the head and not knowing what he's doing. He knows everything, but we know nothing and have to try to like piece together what Anderson's trying to build here line by line to figure out how, how to handle this, the world that he's thrust us into without, without any preparation. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, yeah. He drops us in the deep end, and the the aliens when we get to them, uh, which is pretty pretty fast. It's a short story, right? It's only ninety minutes long. Um, they're pretty much human, but they have tails. They have fur, but they wear clothes. They have uh, yeah, two eyes. He but... spends <clears throat> spends very little time describing that. Yep. Right? Just it would just be in a sentence, you know, where they would say, you know, uh, he swished his tail or something like That's that. That's right. And we don't have any characters that say. My gosh, look at that alien, you know? That's right. Uh, they, they're perfectly comfortable. They've, they've been around him for a long, long time. And uh, they just are, you know? So um, they're not noticing things that, I'll, that I'll give that a lot description of other here. would help them notice. This is right? in Chapter 2. The Kazaki were humanoid, to be sure. Shorter than the terrestrial average, but slim and lithe. Soft golden fur cover covered his sinewy body and a slender tail switched restlessly against his legs his head was that the least human part of him with its sloping forehead narrow chin and blunt muzzled face the long whiskers around his mouth and above the amber cat eyes twitched continuously sensitive to the minute shifts in air currents and temperature along the top of his skull the fur grew up in a cockatoo plume that swept back down his neck a secondary sexual characteristic that females lacked. Now, what's funny here is um, if you look at the original art, uh, which is on the Gutenberg, I believe, um, uh, should be, um, it just looks like a mohawk. <laughs> and the guy doesn't look, <laughs> it doesn't look exactly right to me. But um, I was uh, looking at the illustration, and oh, this picture is from right near the end of the story. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of lots of funny things going on in the background. So these, uh, aliens are, well, what level technology you think you were saying? Like pe- a little post medieval maybe, but pre modern, yeah, yeah. right? They've got, yeah. uh, yeah. 
So, so they, 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 they don't fire arms yet. Yes, so they're bas- they're basically like twelfth, thirteenth century in human terms. I was thinking fourteenth or fifteenth, maybe. Depends. Depends, right? Um, Kazaki. Um, so you guys probably don't recognize that phrase or that sound. K H A Z A K I. Um, it kind of reminds me of the Khazars. I don't know who the Khazars. Who that sounds the, 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 vaguely the, the, familiar. The, 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 case, the Khazars were a steppe people who lived in southern Russia. Ah. In the oh, okay. Well, you you are you're hunting around the right place because uh, Robert E. Howard had uh, Conan um, hang out with some people he called the Kazakis, uh, which are basically Cossacks, right? What, yeah, what that the Cossacks are basically the descendants of the Khazars. So yeah, that's right. So um, I, I'm thinking that that's sort of who these people are in the analog that is Paul Anderson's brain, because we've got in this multinational crew of the starship uh, Voyager up in orbit here, we've got um, some Japanese, we've got this, this uh, Scandinavian guy as our main character, but everybody's related to each other. And we're just so lucky. Thanks to the plot magic that the second generation of humans born just had a lot of females. <laughs> so the four families of males uh names get spread around um except uh we still have people left over from the original generation our uh, uh operations officer ching chung chen <laughs> <laughs> aka ends in kim i guess um <laughs> oh that's cold well i mean he was he had to have been young right because it's three generations ago um, we've got an adult female who was taught astrogation, right, by her grandfather. So it's it's several generations. She's the only one who knocks and knows. That's right. For some one. reason, for some reason, she decided to study this useless skill. Um, but uh, I also like that our our Conan figure, who looks really buff, <laughs> he's got skin. His skin is. Um, is uh, prematurely old looking, makes him wise and cool, um, and he's got a scar on his forehead. Um, he's, uh, he, he says, or casually we learn that he's, uh, had many women attracted to him, including many of the native women. <laughs> what would they, that makes me think of, um, speaking of that, that reminds me of the, the Elspreg de Camp Prant. Planet Krishna novels, which is set in a different future history where humans go out to the stars, they find this planet of kind of, they kind of look like humans, except they're green skinned and they have like little, little tentacle thingies over their eyebrows, but they are definitely attracted to humans and vice versa. And they're also at a medieval level of society and humans keep trying to keep them from getting extra technology, whereas they see the humans as technology definitely want that. So there's a lot of tension in those novels and stories between the aliens trying to get themselves uplifted by human technology and humans trying to keep them from basically going off to the stars because they're passionate, warlike, and definitely unleashing them on the, unleashing the Christians on the universe would be a bad thing. So that's, that's what that reminds me of the, when it says like, Oh yeah, attracted to both humans and, uh, and Kazaki, like, oh, well, I guess, yeah. Um, or to go back to um, uh, Larry Niven, uh, it's, uh, it's almost it's almost Rishastra in a way, if you think about the Range of Engineers. Yeah, well, that that was cultural, um, whatever. Was cultural. But this is this is just this is just wenching. 
So I'll read that section uh, section here. Uh, He looked away, his face hot in the gloom, realizing suddenly why uh, Macefield Carson hated him. Briefly, he wished he hadn't had such consistent luck with women. But the accident <laughs> there, that there was a preponderance of females in the second and third generation of Kazaki humans had made it more or less inevitable. And he, well, he was only human. There'd been earthling girls and uh, not a few Kazaki women had been intrigued by the big terrestrial. Yes, I was lucky, he thought bitterly. Lucky in all except that one, the one that mattered. And this comes right after, um, we find about, uh, find out about, um, uh, Ellen, 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 right? So I'm going to read this section a little bit earlier. Ants felt a small mm-hmm. hand laid on his arm. He looked down into the dark eyes of Dufer Marie. She was a pretty girl, a little younger than he. And until he'd, until he'd really noticed Ellen, he'd been paying her some attention. So he's like a super player here. I don't care about equality, she whispered. A woman shouldn't try to be a man. I'd only want to cook and keep house for my man and bear his children. It was Ants. Uh, it was Ants realized a typical Kazaki attitude, but he remembered with a sudden pity that Car- Carson had been courting Marie. This is pretty tough on you, he muttered. I'll try to see that Carson is saved if we win, he added wryly. Him? I don't care about that ma- Macefield. Let him hang. But Ants, be careful. So, <laughs> I see this as a very Conan, uh, Conan guy running around, uh, grabbing, uh, looking for the, uh, Astrogator, uh, so they can, I don't know, escape to the moon or whatever. <laughs> sort of story. And I think that's pretty funny because I was promised a starship. <laughs> it's right in the title, right? <laughs> But it really, it really is not, uh, a science fiction story, um, in its, in its, uh, main action. It, it's just, let's get to the starship, right? So the mm-hmm. starship is the goal. And what, what's fun is that's what Planet Stories is about, right? It's, it's about the planets, not the ships. So there are sure. stories in Planet Stories, including in this, in this issue, I think, um, that are, uh, set just basically in starships. Or rockets mm-hmm. or whatever, but um, it's it's to go. The whole purpose of a starship is not to be in the starship; it's to get to another place, right? And that that uh, aspect is here. We got stuck there, and that's it's fun. Planetary romance is what we've got here. Yeah, and then you know the other idea that this starship has just been up there in orbit, you know, for so long mm-hmm. is also. Uh, Probably a novelty at the time from 1950. That yeah, it's been a little a really new idea. It's yeah. A, yeah, yeah. Sputnik hadn't even been launched yet. It's here we have, not not yeah, for another seven years, Paul. It's crazy. Um, so mm-hmm. yeah, I mean there had been orbits and stuff in stories prior, but Planet Stories is is all way ahead, and so you can see why people like really pick up on this idea of science fiction in the 50s when they're talking about things you know, five, ten years ago, and then you see those things start to actually happen, you can see why people are like, maybe there's something to this stuff, as opposed to, like, romance or railroad or, uh, you know, all the football magazines. There's, like, football fiction magazines, baseball fiction magazines, right? You can see why they might say, oh, yeah, there's something to this stuff. Mm -hmm. Because in those tiny little details, you get... um, 
well, it's extrapolative science fiction. That's, and that's, that's why when I'm watching these Voyager episodes and I, like, this story really works, usually it's because there's some real thing behind it, right? And, uh. Some, some real science behind it. You yeah, mean, like. Real like, scientific idea. Yeah, like, the reason we like, uh, Dragon's Egg by Robert L. Forward is because he, he said, well, if, we had a neutron star and it had this, uh, if I wanted to see life on it, how would that life look? Right. So you put in a ton of work, brain, brain work trying to figure out how it would all make sense, what size they'd be, what speed of, uh, their metabolism would be just by doing some, you know, basic number crunching. And then he says, okay, and now how do I tell it as a story? And then when that gets adapted to a Next Generation episode or a Voyager episode or an Orville episode, all that brain work lends some sort of truth to the story that makes us go, huh, yeah. So I, I, I see this is sort of in that era, uh, in that, I mean, what, what I'm so struck by is this is sort of a mediocre story. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not an amazing story. I'm not going to remember it for all the rest of my life as, you know, one of the top five or anything like that. But it's still good. And the reason it's still good, and I've read a lot of stories that are way worse than this one, is because he actually, he has some stuff going on in his mind. And that idea of a starship in orbit and people not being able to access it, because it is the sort of struggle we'll see between uh, the Soviets and the United States to get to the moon, you know, it's a, a tangible object in the sky, mm. right? It makes you think differently about what, what's going on. If you can put a telescope on it and plot the mountains of the moon and name all the craters on it, it's a, it's a goal. And uh, yeah. I, I, I like that, you know, he didn't just have it, be like uh, there. There's actually another one that I was thinking of while um, reading this. It was um, what's the one? Uh, Mission of Gravity by Hal Clement. Yeah, right. Yeah, where they crash. Well, it's a they crash their humans crash their probe or something, and they communicate with the the uh, the locals. The, the, what are they uh, called? The mescalinites. Mescalines, mm-hmm. right? Mescalinites. And say, you know, we need to have this, this, and this. Can you help us out? And they, yeah, they get, they get their stuff going to get that thing back up in this, into space. And turns out that this is mutually beneficial, right? Right. And there's a sequel where they all, they both team up to go to a different planet together to explore it. And that, that idea of, you know, we're, we're going to be friends is actually a fun idea. And, What's funny is that at the end of this very masculine story, there's a scene where, you know, we don't exactly know what's going to happen when he says, uh, I'm, give me your sword. And, uh, it turns out that <laughs> we have a scene, uh, let's see if I can find it. Um, uh, he's, I found it. You got it? He, he had it after a moment. A man has to stand by his comrades. Oh, uh, that's it. it very slowly. Give me your sword, he said. Eh? And so look at him. The blue's eyes were unseen, blind with pain, but he handed over the red weapon. Janizic slipped his own glaive into the human's fingers. Then he laid a hand on Anza's shoulder and smiled at him and looked away. We Kazaki don't know love. There's comradeship deeper than any earthling knows. When it happens between male and female, they are mates. 
What happens between male and male, they are blood brothers. And a man must stand by his comrades. That's the one. So I was thinking, I was thinking, oh, they don't have any gays. <laughs> oh, that's um, 1950 and Paul Anderson's conservative upbringing, you know, I'm, I, I, I give a pass on that. They wasn't even thinking that. But, kind of, but going back again to, um, to CJ Cherry's foreigner series, the aliens on that planet have, I believe the phrase is they have a dozen words for betrayal, but not a single word for love. I believe is the phrase, have a phrase mm. that goes. So that kind of reminds me that like, they don't understand love quite the same way. It's like, but that also goes back to the whole, the whole uh, parody of Kirk is teach me this earth thing you called kissing sort of thing. Right, so right. yeah, the, humans have to teach, have to teach uh, sex to the aliens or I mean, that, there's a line that, I mean, they basically make the point that humans basically go outside and and uh, have sex with every alien they can in the Doctor Who universe. And it's like, oh, yeah, humans would do that because we are, because we, we are we are we are a species almost unique on Earth where we don't have a single mating season or a single breeding area. We can just do it whatever we like, and we're kind of unusual in that on Earth and. We might be unusual on that in the rest of the universe, for all we know. Mm-hmm. Well, I guess we'll find out. We'll find out when we meet other aliens. They might think, like, oh yeah. my god, you have sex all the time? What's wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. I, I like the idea that they're trying to figure out how to build a, a rocket. A rocket, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, and, and not only that, but again, you know, like uh, Jesse was saying, there is this past. And there's a line here, you know, 10 years ago, the first space boat had blasted off toward the starship and exploded in mid-acceleration. Mm-hmm. Yep. More designing, more testing, more slow building, and now the second one lay ready. Perhaps it could reach the starship. And that's, you know, again, just a, a vivid past. Mm-hmm. You know, um, even this, this reminds me of a, of a Jerry Pornell novel called King, King David's Spaceship. Mm-hmm. Have you read it? I, I have not. No, but I, I, I know about it. With the moat in God's eyes, yeah. the same universe. Yeah, it's, it's, it's set in the same universe mm-hmm. where there was this human colony. It fell back to barbarism. The humans come with a spaceship, and they realize they're going to be colonized basically by the Empire. So they try to make, try to avoid that somehow, and so they basically bootstrap themselves to be able to build a spaceship, so they can say, "Hey, we built spaceships too. You can't colonize us." Sort of approach. Mm-hmm. So they they basically yeah try to bootstrap themselves from quasi-medieval to a spaceship in short order, kind of like this. I'm sure I'm sure Paul and, I'm Jerry Pornell read this story and was thinking of that when he wrote that novel. Hmm. Yeah. Well, they all ran in the same circles, so yeah. It's sure. possible, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so many ideas, you know, including the idea that, you know, starships wouldn't even be necessary, or um, what was it, a Peter Hamilton novel where, I think we've talked about this before, actually, where he they landed on Mars for the first time, and there was somebody there waiting because uh, they had figured in their lab how to do a wormhole. Yes. <laughs> so, yes. so this guy in a lab coat, basically in a helmet, was standing there with his air hose going back through this wormhole <laughs> to the Earth and just observing them land, you know? <laughs> I thought that was hilarious. But but the idea, you know, that... Yeah, yeah that was, um, whatchamacallit, that was um, Pandora's Star, I believe. Yeah, that's it, Pandora's yeah. Star, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that that's a hilarious opening scene. Like, what the hell? <laughs> I don't remember what what. I'm pretty sure it's on Larry Nevin's story that 
there's uh, rockets, uh, trees that are genetically engineered to grow into rockets. That, that's 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 Larry Niven. Yeah, those the yeah, those. What book those, do you remember? That's his known spate. Like they they mention them in a couple of stories. The, the yeah, maybe that's maybe we never actually visit it, but the, the, the idea of Schaefer talks about them. Mm. And I would think that has now might might have been engineered by the pack, and well, maybe mm-hmm. if they were engineered by the pack. They were engineered by um, what's called by the um, Tenochtitlan. So yeah, so there's. So I don't think they actually not a major feature, but they they get mentioned a couple of times. Yeah, that's probably I couldn't remember day. which book it is it's in because it's just a interesting tidbit, but uh, it would be useful, you know, <laughs> mm. <laughs> get a chop down a redwood, set a, set, yes. set a guy on the top of it, send him off into space with a helmet, <laughs> fishbowl, we're good to go. Uh, anyway, yeah. anyway, to get to space, right? Mm-hmm. Because right. I, 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 I mean, this is of the era where getting into space and was much more paranoid over the problems of actually living and working in space weren't quite as evident as they are now. Well, I, the, you know, the point of those rocket ships and any ships is not really to live in space, right? It's to go to another place. So mm-hmm. the fact that we've got an international space station, that's all very well and nice. But living in free fall is not is not the point unless unless you're talking integral trees or something, right? Um, right. The 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 right. point and, is and the smoke ring, right? Where you yeah, where you're living in that giant gas. The place. point is to get to a, another place, and yeah. space is the absence of a place. So, mm-hmm. I like yes. what you're saying, you know, about the high crusade too, because th- this, you know, another way this story could have gone, and I know that they were worried about this in the story, but what if the Kazaki the medieval Kazaki right. actually managed to get a hold of that thing, and um, I think that I think go raiding across the galaxy. Yeah, I yeah, think that or, Paul Anderson what would is. They do with it? Yeah, I think he's he's thinking that while he's writing this story, and he's like, I could make this go another way, right? Yeah, right. Which is, <laughs> oh, like, I'm which is like ten, it's that story that novel's like ten years later, right? So uh-huh, right, and it's right. not as far as I know, it's not set in any series. I mean, no, maybe it's it is, not. But, it's set by itself, but. It's it's just it's fun stuff. Another way to go and using a similar situation, um, but notice in both cases somehow the humans are the dominant ones. <laughs> well, if this had happened to humans, you know, we would simply take out our MacBooks and upload a virus to the mother. <laughs> oh my! So we we know exactly how to handle any kind of an alien invasion. What, there was a sequel to that movie, right? Like, uh, was it Independence Day? Yes, there, 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 there was a sequel. Did anybody watch it? Because I heard it was no, really bad. Yeah, I, heard I actually terrible. have not, yeah. I, I heard know. it was terrible. So it's like, it's like, it's I would assume away. it was bad. But what's funny is the original was a comedy as well, right? Like, well, it was a good comedy. Welcome well, yes. Well, but mm. like the fact that he's uploading using a MacBook a virus. I mean, it's just saying, hey, uh, you know, H.G. Wells and the had a War of the Worlds thing? Uh-huh, yeah. I- I'm, uh, I'm doing that, right? I mean, it's not like, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a comedy version of it, right? Yes. Right. And, and so people... Right. It's, it's homage, like, yeah, instead of a regular virus, it's a computer virus. Get it? Yeah, and that's exactly right. They do, you know, we do get it. And, and that's why that movie worked, right? Like, Independence Day is not a great movie. It's a fun movie. 
Um, yeah. it's, it's a really it's, fun it's, movie. It's, it's, it's very well American, but, but yeah. yeah. Well, but also no, it's not just the Americans do everything, which uh, is a little well, unrealistic. Well, no, we just see it from the American point of view, right? No, no, but no, well, we see a couple of scenes like oh, oh, what, because they're spreading on the information, and we see a couple couple short clips of of people say, oh, what are the Americans' guys? It's like everyone's been sitting around waiting for the Americans to do stuff. That's even then, it's just like that well, that's just did Americans you guys know that, talking. Um, to the yes. Dirk Mags did a, an audio called going to bring that up. The UK, yes. You are? Okay. Yeah, of course. You told me about it, and I listened to it. Yeah. But I, I just want to point out that this is what Americans do no matter what, right? So, like, <laughs> sure. like um, yeah, w- when talking to Julie about World War II, you know, I, I say, you know, the Russians won World War II in Europe, right? And she's like, nope. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> like, if you, if you look at the Battle of Kursk... And you, and and you look at what the you know the reason why Berlin <laughs> is in the middle of East Germany is because they got there first and then they said oh yeah you guys want a piece of it that's fine <laughs> like it was a rush to get into Germany because the West was very slow right uh, it was harder for them in the sense that they physically have to transport people to England and they right they go through I, Italy I, I and mean, all that had stuff. Operation Market Garden worked then. The border would have been very different. It didn't work, though, right? It, 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 it didn't work. It was a bridge too far. But literally, like you know, the amount of troops who die on the Western Front versus the Eastern Front—it's—it's it's like the West is a sideshow in compared to the East. It's just oh, oh absolutely. The Russians could have won. It's the not war true in the Pacific. It's not true in the Pacific, right? No, but it is um, true in yeah, yeah. The Russians didn't have the assets in the Pacific, but the. the I mean, how Japan attacked Russia instead of the United States in the Pacific—that would have been an so interesting that, change. If they, if they, I didn't see that new Independence Day movie, which was probably not worth doing. But you know, there is this sort of—they uh, tried to do this. We got to get, the, we got to get the Chinese market because they got this giant, you know, audience with movie theaters, billions of people in China. And if it was just like with, we're throwing a Chinese character, well, we'll be able to sell this thing. <laughs> and and so you see, like a lot of these big blockbuster movies, like there was one with the or Rock, not China, or like or like or even like South Korea. Like for example, it's one of the uh, Marvel movies randomly has a scene set in Seoul. Yeah, for sure. no reason. It's like no, there's a reason. <laughs> the reason. Well, is... yeah, I, I mean for plot, plot, it's like for plot reasons, it just makes sense. Market reasons makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. There, there's a movie with Dwayne Johnson. Um, it's he plays an architect. I can't remember the name of the movie, but he plays an architect, and it's set in like Taiwan. No, not Taiwan. It's Hong Kong or maybe Shanghai or something like that. And as you can see, that the the logic behind this is we're gonna be able to sell this to Americans and China. <laughs> and so they have like a Chinese sidekick for him slash love interest, but not really because he's got a wife, right? And and they so, so hey, we get this going. <laughs> and it, it sort of lands badly. Right? I'm sure it made money, but it lands badly because it isn't at its core something true. It's more of like uh, if you're building the rocket ship and you add a, like a little bump out here to make it look cool, that's inefficient. And you, you add like a spoiler. 
at the bottom. I mean, you don't need a spoiler on a rocket ship, right? That's the, it's right. not trying to hold it down. And you don't need scoops either because it doesn't use atmospheric. <laughs> so, all, and pinstripes, I mean, I guess it doesn't hurt that much, but the more you add on to a story to make it, uh, cool, maybe the worse and less functional it'll be. And what I like about this is that it doesn't overstay its welcome because it's only an okay story, right? But it's Mm -hmm. only 90 minutes. So I don't feel like, oh my God, when is he going to get on with this, right? We don't need all that stuff that came before because the story he's trying to tell is a very small one. It's just like the successful escape after three generations, right? And also we get a little planetary romance, but that's it. That's the whole story. So it's got this uh, incredibly detailed backstory. Yes, that uh, is <laughs> that the author knows when he wrote it, and um, that we can uh, surmise or think he's, about. He, or, he's got a good outline yeah. for it, right? He didn't. He mm-hmm. didn't say, yeah. "I know everything that's going to happen in all of these stories." So when you look at that uh, that future history chart. And it talks about the story he's entitled Cold Victory, which doesn't come out until the 80s, right? It, mm-hmm. it doesn't, isn't published until the 80s. He, he has the idea for that story, but he hasn't written it out, right? He yeah, says, I, it, I mean, there's a couple of Highline stories like that too in this chart that he have actually, never actually finished, but he knows how they go. Like, right. for example, The Rise of the Prophet. He knows how that's going to go, but he doesn't. He never actually writes the story because he believe he said in one of his collections and one of the forewords, like it, the story depressed him. They decided never to write it. Right. After all, I, I mean, what's the the famous one on the future history chart is the Crazy Years, right? This is the one that Spider Robinson always mentioned. <laughs> we don't. There, I don't think there is a story set in the Crazy Years, but the, the, that's because we don't need that. What he needs to know is that people are now optimistic because they're no longer in the crazy years, right? And that's enough to get him to where he needs to go. So what I'm interested in in this story for are basically, oh, it's a nice little planetary romance uh, with a science fiction setting um, in what is otherwise a, you know, just standard um, Green Odyssey sort of story. Whereas Green Odyssey is a kind of a sex comedy, <laughs> This yeah. has that aspect, but actually it's more Conan slash action and Blood Brothers and that sort of thing, right? Um, reaving, reaving pirates. I mean, we get this whole backstory yeah, of the main literal pirates. Apparently gone around the world doing Conan-like stuff. Mm-hmm. And, he, and he knows he's a barbarian by comparison to the rest of uh He's got that blonde mane. <laughs> <laughs> he's got that yeah. ring mail and chain mail, right? He's got a sword. It's all ready to go. And it's not a magic sword, right? It's all, mm-hmm. uh, the reason he's tough is because he's from a planet, uh, or his ancestors are from a planet that has higher gravity or whatever. I mean, that's not, not stated, but that's the presumption, right? So right, I, right. I think that, the, the, that it's, fu- it's fine for what it is, but I, I'm interested in how it got to be as fine as it is for what is, what it really is, which is a very pulpy story, right? It's it, it's a pulp story with a chassis and backstory of a well thought out set to get us to this point where he can have his his characters go basically trying to conquer the castle, have fun storming the castle. 
Yeah, it, take it, a that, the yeah. No, I mean, that, mm-hmm. when when I first re- started reading Paul Anderson, is like this guy seems really obsessed with Iceland. Like that's kind of a weird thing to be yeah. obsessed with for a guy who's a science fiction writer. But he makes it work, right? For what he, it's it's why he's not my favorite. Uh, because I'm just not as obsessed with the Northern Lands as he is. Um, but on the <laughs> That's other, too funny. I'm I'm actually reading the All Saga right now, which yeah? is an Icelandic saga. Um, cool, very enjoyable. But yeah, uh, Paul Anderson does write inspired by that stuff for sure. Have either you guys read the Man Who Came Early yet? No. Who's that by? Is that him? Anderson. That, that is Paul Anderson. It's um, you know about Less Darkness Fall, yeah. correct? Mm-hmm. Yes, make the camp story. Mm-hmm. Yes. The Man Who Came Early is basically Paul Anderson's answer to that story. Uh-huh. Oh, really? Set in Iceland. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say any more, but... Oh, okay, okay, J- J- Jesse, I know you explore this. Basically, an American uh, soldier gets transported back to... From 19, 1940s back to medieval Iceland. Kind of like Less Darkness Fall sends the professor back to see... Sounds fun. Rome. I, I think I might have read it now that you, you tell me the, those details, but it would have been yeah. a very long time ago. Yep. So, and being a Paul Anderson story, it doesn't go well. <laughs> but it's, yeah. re- it's really well done. It's really got that sense of detail in place. I mean, you say he's obsessed with Iceland. No, I'm not. I, I, I just mean like, like it's kind of a weird thing, right? Like, um, Heinlein isn't obsessed with one region of human history. As far as I can tell, other than American, <laughs> but he isn't like um, my ancestors came from Ireland or whatever, or Germany, um, and so I'm only going to tell stories that are set in the Black Forest, <laughs> which is how I feel like, like um, uh, when I read Paul Anderson, it's like his hobby horse is Scandinavian history and and the Eddas and. <laughs> kind of a weird thing to be for a science fiction guy and and i'm thinking about like he wrote a ton of stuff i i was thinking a little bit about starways uh, which i've read years ago um and honestly it's like he's not in the first tier of science fiction writers right he's not he's not with ted chang he's not with arthur c clark and uh heinlein right he's not up there but he ain't at the bottom and he's either second or third tier for me, but he's never terrible, right? Consistently mm-hmm. never terrible, and he wrote a ton, which is, I uh, it's it, it's uh, kind of like how I think a lot of people think of Andre Norton. I don't like Andre Norton's stuff as much, but that sort of second tier, third tier. How did he how did he manage to make a good story? Out of what obviously didn't take him very long to write, and I think it's him doing uh, a lot of leaning on other things like uh, Conan, and Conan's leaning on other things, of course, too, right? Um, and right. and and he, they could be leaning on the same things, right? Um, the the Kazaki, right? One of the one of the reasons I I think. Um, I, one of the reasons we know Howard Howard writes so well is because he's writing a lot, but he is he's leaning heavily, heavily, heavily on history to do like he's interested in these historical figures, and then he can't 
sell that to this market, so he sells it as a fantasy story, right? And most of the time when we think of uh, Howard's Conan stuff, we probably add in this magic thing, but he almost never has magic in his stories as the major function. The magic is there, but it isn't like there's an evil wizard who's casting a spell, right? And Conan has to fight him sword against a wizard thing. It's usually like long time ago there was a wizard who did a spell. Or there is this tower that's made of magic or something like that. Or he's fighting liter- a literal god. And so it it's like the the leaning here by Paul Anderson is actually on the science rather than the magic. And so they're kind of similar, but I also, you know, like when you're reading Paul, I don't feel the magic that I I feel when I read Robert E. Howard's prose. It's like that is beauty. It's poetic. I, I think Paul Anderson did write a little bit of poetry, but he ain't a poet in the sense like he, Robert he, E. Howard he did, thought he did write it, some poetry. I mean, some of, some of his collection, some of those collections that uh, that uh, Nesbitt did have some of his yeah, poetry. Yeah, so. but it, I mean, I, he I, didn't I, think I of himself as a poet, right? Yeah. Uh, like the, the way Lovecraft and, and Howard thought of themselves as poets, which is it's weird, right? But leaning on that poetry makes the prose like sparkle in a way. Here it doesn't sparkle. It's totally serviceable and and, and good. But yeah, he's going more for water than for me. But, but he has like a really big, or maybe it's very watered down mead. <laughs> Didn't you say you were drinking some mead, Scott? I was, yeah. I, I How was did, it? Uh, it was, it was interesting. I just never had it before. And I was reading this, uh, Nyal saga, you know, and which has some battles in which, uh, you know, a person will, take a break from the battle to down some mead, you know, from their flagon and then continue. So it's, it's, it's pretty cool. But it, I, I always thought mead was like a beer and it's not, it's uh it's a honey based wine almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's pretty sweet. Did you but water yeah, it? I tried it. It's interesting. No, I didn't. I just drank <laughs> it like so it speak, was. Yeah. So speaking of Scandinavian stuff, uh, so you guys know about Netflix Watch Party, that app where you can basically watch a show together mm, on yeah, Netflix at the same no. time. So the Skiffy and Fenty people and I have been watching shows like that. We just started a Norwegian show called Ragnarok, which is set in Norway, and it appears that um, it's about a it's about a kid whose family moves to this back to their hometown, and the kid might actually be Thor, and the people who are running the school might actually be giants. And at one point, they take him. the The giants take Thor to their to their house. They're the richest people in town because they think he's thing. And they gave him they give him mead. And this is kind of stolen directly out of a Norse myth where Thor visits the house of the giants and they get him drunk on mead. It's like it's got interesting resonances with Norse mythology in this in in the in the uh, story in the show. And I think you'd like it. Both of you. Hmm. Cool. Interesting. Uh, I'll wait to hear uh, the final verdict on it because I've noticed uh, what a lot of Netflix shows do is they come up with a, a premise that they think they can sell and then they sell it to Netflix, which is apparently pretty easy because they got so many goddamn shows. And then what happens is they sell, oh shit, now we got to write a whole series. And then we have to try and get it renewed. But I get the feeling this was originally produced in Norway because it's, because it's translated. 
and then they got sold to Netflix rather than being produced for. Yeah, no, it's no, it's it's no, it's it's produced probably for Netflix Norway, right? Because Netflix is planetary now. Um, uh, there's a uh, really good show called Norseman, which is filmed both in Swedish. Oh, yeah, that's that's a very funny story. Swedish and English, and they do you know <laughs> one episode back to back. So each scene is for, f- filmed in Swedish and then is filmed in English, and it's it's terrific. It's very funny. Uh, I've seen the first season of that. It was funny stuff. It is. It's, it's <laughs> very funny, silly stuff. They're wandering mm-hmm. around the forest, but they're people. leaning so heavily on the actual <laughs> facts of you know Norwegian life or uh, Scandinavian life in those days that the jokes make themselves right. <laughs> <laughs> so you're saying I need to throw myself off this cliff because I'm I'm uh I'm gonna go to heaven this way and also it will help the community. Yeah. Okay, I'm listening. <laughs> Is there an alternative we have? Because oh my gosh, right? Yeah. It's it's mm-hmm. it's legit. It's and that's uh, that's impressive. So maybe maybe that's what really catapults Paul Anderson out of like the. I don't want to say the gutter of pulp, but like yeah, yeah, play up. Don't, yeah, don't. He's not in the gutter. No, but it, I mean, he was a pulp writer first. That's where you know these. There are a lot of That's very like weak ass stories in yeah. in these pulp magazines, right? I I try not to read them, but somebody needs to look at them, and so if if it happens to be the right length and it's available, I'll I'll read it, and I don't. Yeah, that was okay. It has this redeeming feature are. or something. But Paul Anderson, you know, he made a career out of it, and he and he wrote a ton. I'm, by the way, he did write a Conan novel, a pastiche, right, mm. like, um, in 1980. So he he knew uh, enough. I mean, he's writing his own stuff, but uh, that's also a paycheck. Am I right that he did something with Tarzan as well? Or maybe I you could be. You're thinking, you're thinking of the camp. Okay. The camp. Camp did a Tarzan novel. Camp did mm. Conan novels, which some people are very, very met on. Mm. So, I remember back in the old hour twenty five days, mm-hmm. um, listening to an interview of Paul Anderson in which he was talking about Sherlock Holmes. Yeah, um, no, I think he's well, he, written he's some. One of the Baker Street Irregulars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's got like twenty five yeah. novels or something, right? Like he's he's not insubstantial in novels, but he's also got dozens of collections. And then there's the fi- you know not fix ups, but those uh, psychotechnic league psychotechnic league uh, books that you know include the newest story he's written to fill in the hi- fill in the history. And he's got the Time Patrol, which I'm not huge on. I think I I've read like a, the, I, I do like the Time Patrol stories. Because eh, I, I, I think Delenda Est is one of my favorite stories hmm. of all time. Which is which is basically where time travelers change the result of a of a battle and, and Rome and Rome falls to Carthage and then the time travelers have to fix it. Mm-hmm. I'm looking on that I'm trying to see yeah, it. Yeah, I've, oh, I've thoroughly 55. enjoyed all the Cole Anderson that we've read so far. Um Still, still enjoying them. Still, lots to explore. Oh yeah, and more and more coming out all the time. That's that's the good news. It's incredible. That, that is definitely that is definitely the good news. Yeah, incredible the amount of new content finally hitting Gut- Gutenberg. Very happy about this. Mm. 
Well, so we have uh, we have three hearts and three lions on the schedule now. Yeah. Um, yes. Down in June, so yes. we'll, that'll be great. Yep, I'm looking oh, forward to that a lot. Yes. And you you said that that was mentioned in the appendix and stuff. Huh? Yeah, yeah, the uh, Jeffro Johnson oh, guy. I would imagine the broken sword was big. Yes, in it, it, it was it was mentioned as well. Yep. Uh, it, basically, mm-hmm. what what that book is is it's a bunch of reviews, right? So he goes through the entirety of the list. Um, now, some of them it just says what author it is, right? Yeah. It doesn't say but this book. But Appendix N itself is a list of works. Is that right? Yes, it's a. And, and it's, then Broken Sword and. It's in the Dungeon Master's Guide original edition. There. Yeah. Yeah. And that's cool. Both, both are called out explicitly. And mm-hmm. in, in that book, uh, which is a book of reviews of the Appendix N, um, his. He he basically looks at the stories as what they contributed to Dungeons and Dragons, uh, but he doesn't limit it to that because uh, Gary Gygax was also involved, and uh, the other guy, were, uh, Dave Arneson, were involved in other uh, role playing games too, like Gamma World, and uh, uh, he mentions other uh, role playing games um, and how how um, the magic system, like everybody probably knows that Vance's magic system is the one that's most applicable. Yeah, it's called Vancean for a reason. Yeah, mm. applicable to Dungeons & Dragons magic system, you know, like spell memorization, and then you lose your spell after you memorize it, and X, Y, Z. But what he does is he says, this book is interesting because it has this connection to this game we all play. Right, mm-hmm. and then if you're a dungeon master, if you want to make your story more interesting and less technical, you can lift from these guys, which is what you see in a story like. And then, so it, it, it makes those connections. So, um, whatever he said in uh, the book about three hearts and three lions, uh, it, may, it made me say that sounds really interesting. So that's why I wanted to do it, even though again, Paul Anderson is not my fave. Hmm. Gotcha. I just don't. I, I just don't think his prose is is beautiful. I think it's serviceable, and I I kind of like. I, I I had my mom read to me a uh, a story by a no name author. It turned out to be uh, Jerome Bixby. You know. Mm, now yeah. Jerome Bixby is famous for a couple of stories, including that good movie that um, a friend of mine named Vince turned me on to called uh, The yeah, Man from yeah. Earth. Did you see that mm-hmm. one, Paul? The Man uh, no. from Earth. Oh, it's really good. Um, it's on YouTube, uh, and it's a. Uh, it was crowdfunded, so it's also available via torrent. I think it's a 2017 movie, or maybe it's a 2007 movie. In any case, it's basically a bunch of Star Trek actors. Um, about half of them are Star Trek actors uh, sitting in a room talking talking for an hour and a half, and that's the whole movie. <laughs> oh, they go outside once. Um, but it's a science fiction movie and it's really good. And it's written by Jerome Bixby. But Jerome Bixby is more of an ideas guy, um, than a, a prose master. And I had my mom read, uh, me a story that was by him. I for- had forgotten that it was by him because it didn't say that at the top. But it turns out it was because he was the editor of that magazine and yeah, we now know that it was him, right? Just under a pseudonym. And the prose was pretty terrible. But, I went through it afterwards and I said, it has this, 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 right? And it turns out like those are all Star Trek things, right? 
like literal things that you find in Star Trek. And Jerome Bixby wrote four episodes of the original Star Trek. Right? Did he? Oh, yeah. Months. Um, can't remember. The important part is, um, ideas are incredibly important for science fiction and they're important for all stories, right? But most people sort of uh, alternate between nice prose and, mm. and some sort of characters thing. And I'm like, no. So that crappy story is interesting, right? Crappily written story is interesting because of what's happening in it, not the story itself. Mm. And I just think that that's, it's interesting that you could cut, like that story has a, 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 basically a first contact protocol that we would call the prime directive, right? Mm-hmm. But it's from an aliens. The aliens are the ones coming to this planet, right? Full of uh, what turns out to be humans. And that's interesting, right? And then they have a ship in orbit that they use the shuttle uh, to come down from. And then there's a, they have teleportation, a.k.a. transporters, right? And then there's a bunch of other little details that is like, oh, that that's all Star Trek stuff. Well, all of this, all the things that we think of as sort of Star Trek basics, right, that are in the original uh, series are lifted from Star Trek idea, uh, Star Trek ideas in non-Star Trek stories. And now oh, I, I find I, I find the list of uh, episodes that Bixby did. Yeah. Mirror, mirror by any other name. Day of the Dove, yeah. By any by, other by, name, by I think is the second story, isn't it? Or, uh, by any other name is the one is. Is, that's the that's the one where they uh, that's the one where they uh, try to take the Enterprise to the Andromeda Galaxy and uh, turn people into those weird right. cubes. Yeah, it's that's not 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 a good episode. No, but Mirror Mirror is is the original Mirror Universe episode. Story. Yeah, that's a great episode. We, we get bearded Spock. <laughs> Go teed Spock. Spock. Yes. Yeah. What what were the other ones? Um, Day of the Dove and, and then Day of the Dove is one of the Klingon episodes. It's one of the Klingon episodes where the alien yeah. makes them makes the Klingons and the humans fight each other on the ship forever. So mm-hmm. they have to basically laugh the alien off the ship. And Wrecking from Methuselah is the one with I believe that's the one with um, Zephyrin Cochran, the original Zephyrin Cochran story. There's a Zephyrin Cochran in the original. I don't remember. Yeah. 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 He was. Isn't that the one where he was stranded on a planet uh, um, because of no, the no, other shuttle? Not, or no, no, it's not. It's not the Zephyr Cockroach story. I'm wrong. There is a Zephyr Cockroach story, but that's not the one. This is the one with the with the immortal guy who's stranded on a planet. Flint is his name. I don't remember. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, 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 and he's got a robot and stuff. Those are original Star Zephyr- Trek episode titles. Unless it's City on the Edge of Forever, I, they all just blend in. Each other, so, it's was so Galileo long. Seven the one with Cochran? <laughs> no, Galileo Seven is the one with 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 the with the shuttle with with having problems with the shuttle and that's I remember if they the, had, I remember a shuttle and him being stranded on there and then trying to decide whether he wanted to leave or not. Yeah, um, but that, that episode Galileo Seven is the story without. Without them staying on the planet for three generations, right? Instead of having to mate with those giant, giant guys who throw rocks. Right. <laughs> oh, so yeah. he, he crash landed on there, and then um, this this entity kind of healed him, 
and he was trying to decide whether to leave or not. So yeah. cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, and you know, Bixby is most famous for um, the episode of Twilight Zone. It's Twilight Zone. Yeah, it's a good life. Remember, that's the one. Or sorry, I'll yep. read it properly. It's a good life. It's good that you took away my legs, little Johnny. <laughs> I'm glad that you you gave my mother no mouth because she said an unkind word in in your presence. <laughs> it's good. <laughs> so, um it's a good idea story, right? I don't remember the story. I I've read this original story and I don't remember it being particularly interesting other than it's a good idea story. Um so I think Paul Anderson is is kind of interesting cuz he relies on two is kind of his two tricks or is one is he's got this deep interest and knowledge of uh Scandinavian history right? <laughs> and he knows a little bit about science which is very cool you put those two things together somehow you can get a career really interesting right but you don't have to have uh like golden pros like Lord Dunsany <laughs> you don't have to have Clark Ashton Smith levels of uh you know prose oh, poetry goodness, yes. it's it's you can just like uh skate on those two things in science fiction just just having a knowledge of history and a knowledge of science that's good enough oh i mean you also have to be able to write sentences right <laughs> but it seems to be like wow that's amazing so mm -hmm. i'm 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 good i'm good with reading more paul anderson but i don't want to make him a staple of my diet yeah what you 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 wouldn't want this to be the Paul Anderson podcast, is what you say? Oh, absolutely not. I, I I'm not even sure I would listen to all the episodes of a Paul Anderson podcast because I think it would get repetitive really fast. And I I, I do like listening to podcasts that are like there's a Ray. Did you know there's a Ray Bradbury podcast? It doesn't surprise. I would me believe it. That. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, called Bradbury 100, I think. And they just started oh, cool. a new one. Um, the guy who did that one started a new one called Science Fiction 101. And, uh, it's a good Science one too. Science Fiction 101, is that based on the book? It's not. It's based on the idea, I think. Uh, I mean, I know they have the same title, but I think it's based on the idea of, uh, the fact that the Ray Bradbury 100 <laughs> and then Science Fiction 101 is like the sequels podcast series. Um, but it's I, I more mean, general. I mean, that 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 Silverberg anthology is kind of old. That would be interesting. interesting. Well, but we Silverberg tried to do it again. But. but the reason Silverberg retitled it to Science Fiction One Hundred and One after calling it Worlds of Wonder is because it's a university course name, right? It's Introduction to Science Fiction is what it means. Your your first university course in whatever department is is course number one hundred and one, usually. Right. So. Uh, they're both doing the same thing. It's a good podcast, um, except for the fact that they they do two th they do three parts to the show. One is they look at uh, old stuff, then they look at current stuff, and then they look at future stuff. And the future stuff is is boring because they're just like hoping that stuff is going to be coming out in the future. <laughs> and the present stuff is they're looking at like stuff that came out recently, which to me means you know it's probably garbage. Just because 90% of everything is garbage. And and if, so if you look back and you look back over your life, you don't usually tell me about that time you took out the garbage. 
right? <laughs> you tell me about the time you uh, were in a in a graveyard and you tripped and fell into an open grave, because that's much more interesting. At night on a Thursday, <laughs> but it's a good podcast. Otherwise, this is a good podcast. I think. Yeah, it's okay. Mm-hmm. I didn't mind it. I'm, 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 I'm satisfied with our conversation here today on on this story. It was shorter than I thought it was. I thought this would be a couple, a few hours. But again, Paul Anderson distilled it down. He's like, I just want to tell the story of storming the castle. It's a novelette. Have all this backstory layered in so that it's more than just a storming the castle story. Although storming the um, you mentioned Robbie Howard. Uh, uh, what's his name? Um, brain freeze. Um, what's his what's his name? I'm having a brain freeze. Um, <laughs> the, the other author that's coming to mind, also, um, not Robert E. Howard. Um, what am I thinking? Uh, who also wrote a lot of that sort of stuff. That but sort more of historical st- fiction. Um, historical fiction. Uh, I'm, I'm having a brain freeze. This, this, this is, I, blame the, I blame the virus. But I blame the virus and the vaccine for this. All right. But I'm not. But um. While you're thinking of that, I'm gonna uh, uh, ask Scott if he's gonna ban himself from the Bane forums. I will. I will spend as much time in the Bane forums as I have previous to. How dare you! <laughs> How dare you! <laughs> you monster! <laughs> Oh my goodness. Paul retweeted something about uh, the guy who runs the Bane forum saying, I looked it over and it doesn't seem to be that big a deal. (laughs) And so he turned the forums back on and Uh everybody's losing their shit because um, people on the internet have ideas that are uh, maybe scary. Like Trump should make a militia. Well, well, that's not exactly the friendliest of ideas, Jesse. It's the internet. People are allowed to say whatever they want. Um, yes and yes and Or no. they should be, because yes. <laughs> if you yeah, don't... Yeah, yes, but that, that doesn't mean that people shouldn't react to people saying those ideas or not being held held accountable for saying those ideas. Yeah, but that, you're not trying to hold that guy accountable. You're trying to hold the website Harold, accountable. And the, and the person I was trying to think of is Harold Lamb. Harold Lamb, okay. He's a historical fiction guy. He's a historical fiction guy. I, I'm pretty certain Paul Anderson wrote a lot of Harold Lamb, too. Yeah, probably. I mean, he's the right age for it, and he seems to be of interest so, interested in it. There isn't, there isn't a lot of Harold Lamb in uh, Gutenberg, is there? I, um, I don't know, but he also wrote mostly, like, he wrote, I, I put a... He wrote mostly wrote long novels. So. Yeah, I think I have um, his Genghis Khan book up. Let's see. Yeah, how long is that? It's a novel, so or novel length, so um, it's finding a narrator's lamb. Uh, Marching Sands, that's three hundred eleven pages. The March of the Barbarians, that's three hundred eighty-seven pages. Omar Khayyam, A Life by Harold Lamb, two hundred fifty-five pages. Genghis Khan, two hundred twenty-four pages, and that's that's it so far. But. Some of those are only Canadian public domain, like Omar Khayyam. I'd like to read that. Because I need a Rubiat. More Rubiat in my life. 
Geng- Genghis Khan, Emperor of All Men, is on Audible. Yeah, yeah, it, it sounds doable. I'd prefer to have the LibriVox version, especially. I, 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 I understand. So I can put it in the Genghis feed. Khan. Genghis Khan. Genghis Khan. Um, I, I, I mean, I guess also the same thing for Tamerlane and whatnot. You, you'd rather have a public domain version than get Well, it, eventually they're going to be available, right? It, it's just they're Maybe. old enough. Yeah. Oh, no, no, they will be. It's just a matter of time. So will I live to see it? I don't know. Well, yeah, that, 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 that's that's an academic question at that point. Mm, yeah, but it, I, I think it's possible because we're getting a lot of. Um, so one of the one of the, did you see that uh, Sersova or Sisrova? I can't remember which one it is. They did a um, crowdfunding. Did you hear about this, Scott? Um, crowdfunding for uh, early Julian Hawthorne novel that's never been republished. It's called The Cosmic Courtship. Um, it was from Argosy uh, in 1914, I want to say. Maybe 1917, something like that. Anyways, it's basically a planetary romance um, done through uh, the, the way they did everything back then, astral projection. Um, and uh, it's never been republished, and those scans are not available, but uh, the guy who runs that magazine uh, knew somebody who had the scans, so they did a... Um, or the magazine. So they did scans of them, and then they're going to release it as a novel, as the part of the, um, uh, you know, like, Kickstarter or whatever it is. I can't remember if it's Kickstarter or whatever. Anyways, they did crowdfunding, and they've earned enough money to unlock it for Gutenberg. And mm. they earned enough money to unlock the scans as well. So it's not just going to be the the e-text. It's going to be the original scans, which, yeah, it, to me, is very important. And they're doing so much funding. I, I, they said, if we get to $20,000, we don't know what we're going to do, but we should do something. So I was saying, you should get a professional narrator to narrate it and release that on LibriVox. And LibriVox mm-hmm. is saying, um, we should, uh, that'll probably happen anyways. And I'm like, yeah, but if you get a professional narrator and you put it on LibriVox, that brings more attention to LibriVox. <laughs> so I'm just trying to leverage more stuff into more people going on LibriVox because they have tons of great stuff. It's not like our narrator today, pretty bad, right? He mm-hmm. had trouble finishing sentences in certain sense, like his inflection is bad. It's like Jesse reading. I'm not good at it. That's why I don't do it. But um, that's not the majority. The majority are pretty good. And although there's bad narrators, he wasn't terrible, right? So if we can get more people over there, it's like, it's, it's what we should do for our hobbies and, and share the wealth instead of lock everything behind, right? Can you imagine, Paul, can you imagine if pizza was still under trademark? <laughs> <laughs> pizza. Mm-hmm. I see what you did there. But no, seriously, like if pizza was still under trademark and you could only buy pizza, from official pizza authorized restaurants, you wouldn't have I, like I, deep I, dish pizza or Chicago pizza. style pizza or New York style pizza. You can it have dessert pizza. pizza and you it might be happy pizza. about no Cheerios pizza or whatever, but I'd be saying I, let I, people have pineapple on their pizza. Let people make pizza at home. Pizza. <laughs> <laughs> let our pizzas free. Never! There are some trademarks for some types of foods like, uh, some there are trademarks for like uh, champagne and Parmesan or Reggiano cheese, 
those are trademarked to only being able you can only call yourself that if you're from a certain region. How do you feel about those? Well, uh, Cheddar is the name of a town in England. Mm-hmm. How do you feel what? about that? <laughs> Just because somebody says I can't call it Parmesan cheese. <laughs> you know, like I understand why they're saying champagne is not bubbly, sparkle, sparkly sweet water, right? <laughs> but um, oh, I, understand, I, I understand why you want to be authentic. Right, you want to find the authentic thing, but um, the important part is let our pizzas free. Let people make their own pizzas. <laughs> Some people want to only put uh, certain things on their pizza. Let them. I think uh, we've had a pizza flourishing since pizza became free. Right, <laughs> we're better off with pizza being in everybody's recipe. Book I, I guess than- you didn't see. I, I guess you didn't see the tweet about me being horrified about the about the Canadian who had the. The ketchup on the hot dog. No, I didn't see that. But ketchup no, on hot dogs is standard. Horrifying. You can't do that. You can ketchup is, ketchup is not for s- hot dogs. We have to stop that immediately. You Mustard can't just put ketchup, ketchup on a hot dog. Yeah, it's it does. Allowed. It's allowed. It's not allowed. <laughs> I, I was just at Costco and they gave me some ketchup to put on my hot dog. Well, They said, they, here is your condiments, sir. And I said, thank you very much, ma'am. The, 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 the right condiments for a hot dog are... Golden's mustard, onion sauce, and if you like, sauerkraut. What about uh, mustard uh, that's yellow and red ketchup and, and relish, green relish? Then, then you're going Chicago dog style, and, but we, that's Chicago and Chicago. Let our hot people. dogs free, Paul. What? Don't try and lock down our hot dogs. <laughs> I am locking down your hot dog. Don't lock down this, my hot dogs. This is interesting, guys. I'm on um, Audible. Mm-hmm. And I was just looking at some of the new titles, and one of them that's coming out is The Ship of Ishtar by it Stefan It is public Rudnicki. domain. Yeah, he's uh, reading, uh, Stefan Rudnicki is reading it, though. I, um, and I mentioned to him that it was... This is part of a series called Planet Stories. Uh-huh. And then I, I went into the Planet Stories list, oh, and there's... yes. But the, the only one that oh, shows... Oh, by A. Merritt. Oh, yeah, you know, but we've done that story, I think. Send me a link. Or maybe, maybe I did that story on uh, Good Story. Send me a link um, to that. But but the interesting other things that are in this list, there's Lee Brackett, Harry Cutner, Henry Cutner, mm-hmm. Sword of Rhiannon by Lee Brackett. So um, the, this is an imprint? Yeah, uh, The Dark World, and but they're not showing of any of them are available. The only one that says pre-order is The Ship of Ishtar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, all, yeah, all the others say not available on are the Right, and I'm not why sure not? why, but uh, these would be an interesting little series to do. Or to choose from. I would love to do Sword of Rhiannon by Lee Brackett. This yep. one thing's on my TBR list, actually. Yeah. And then how about Robots Have No Tails by Henry Cutner? <laughs> That's a collection, I believe. Is it? I believe so. Okay. But, so um, it's covered to be revealed. Yeah, but it, yeah, it's, maybe but they're forthcoming. But I want to point out that there's two, it's, it's all messed there's up. two Ship of Ishtars. Both of them are coming. <laughs> one well, is... Stefan Rudnick. One with Stefan Rudnicki, the other is Johnny Heller, and Johnny Heller's is coming out 0501-21, so two months before uh, Stefan Rudnicki's. You better hurry it up. Wow, it looks like somebody's somebody's redoing um, Asimov, too. We have uh, Nightfall and other stories coming out from recorded books. I want to tell you that um, if you click on the Stefan Rudnicki one, it says Public Domain mm-hmm. 2021 Blackstone Publishing. Um, uh-huh. I was telling 
uh, I did a long conversation by a DM with uh, him. And I said, you know, you could do this. And then I just, he said, oh, what? Really? That's public domain? And then I said, and this one. And I gave him like oh, 40 or 50 titles that are on the PDF page. He says, this is public domain. I'm like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it has been for like six <laughs> years, seven years. It's like, fantastic. I yeah. love it. Good. I'm glad you guys got together because I remember we talked about that. And well, I mean, it was just on DMs and it was only like yeah, one day. Well, but that's, I think Kelly, he just wanted to talk to you about that. Yeah, I, I, I think he waited until this year because it's it's more officially public domain because it's it was published in 1924. Um, and mm-hmm. 1923 was a cutoff until um, I think two years ago. And then, so now it's 1925, and then it, uh, the U.S. law means that now we will start getting things from the late 20s pretty soon that, that were otherwise copyrighted. So, like, uh, mm-hmm. uh, what's that stupid movie that they remake every few generations based on a famous 1924 novel? Uh, with uh, which stupid one? Uh, it's it's The Great Gatsby. Mm. Great yeah. Gatsby, um, they had to put out that, um, what's that movie with, uh, what was the actor? He's the short guy from Titanic. Leonardo DiCaprio. That's the guy. Uh, so they did a short movie, the short guy from Titanic. Um, Leonardo DiCaprio version came out like the, the year before the, co- the, the uh, copyright expired. So that they can push those last set of books and have something for the, to sell to the universities and more importantly, the high schools. Right. And, and like now we can, we can squeeze out those last drops of money. Right. And that's, you, you actually see that a lot. Like that. Oh shit. The copyright's expiring. We got to push this. Push it now before we public domain. I'm not sure, quite sure that's how it works. I, have you seen the Philip K. Dick estate, bud? <laughs> uh, I, well, I, 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 did, I did see that that uh, there is going to be a limited edition Folio Society version. Did you see that uh, the, the horror story that is that collection? <laughs> so, uh, so uh, if you you probably didn't see it, Scott, did you? The Folio Society mm-hmm. book. No, the Folio Society. I did a, a tweet thread on it. Um, so bring it up here. Uh, is this sorting by, or do I just tweet about Philip Kadic like every day? <laughs> um, so I think it was earlier this, oh, you know what? It was, um, it was, uh, Brian. Brian told me about it. He said, he DM'd me, he says, want. And I looked at it and I'm like, oh my God, this is a monstrosity. Um, so it's supposed to be the complete fiction, uh, short stories of Philip K. Dick. I'm sending you the link here. So you can observe the beauty that is this for yourself. I tweeted about this on Tuesday, so I'm going to go back to Tuesday. Um, yeah, yeah, that's, that's the one I mentioned, the complete well, short stories. Yeah. $750 is a bit much, though. Mm-hmm. $750 for four books. Yeah. So uh, I, I'm, you're going to pony up? Yeah. No, but this, I, you know, I are you gonna... are you complaining that they're doing it or what? Uh, my complaint <laughs> this is, is a completely I'm not, I'm different thing. This I'm is... not complaining they're doing it. I just can't afford it. My complaint. Yeah, no, I was asking. My I complaints asking are legion. 
<laughs> so yeah. uh, but see, these are these are limited to 750 yep. copies. These are these are um, collectors editions. They are collectors editions in the sense that if you are a collector, you can buy it and put it on in a box on your shelf and hope to be able to sell it for a higher price later on. Only, yeah. I mean, not everybody does that. I think that that may be... I was talking to a book collector one time, and um, he was saying, you know, Americans tend to do that. Tend to, like, buy this stuff and say, ooh, it's going to appreciate. Yep. And then someday I'm going to get to sell it. But he said um, that the people that he deals with that are in Europe, mostly, they just want... They want... They like the artistic objects, and yeah. they want them. I right? get that. That's what they're doing. I get they, that they too. They like to collect. They like to collect old things, and then these special editions. Um, okay, but it's let's, just something that they have, and they, they don't have anything in their mind about resale. But let's go through what what you get. Okay, so this is what I tweeted. This is a half million dollar revenue project, right? Seven hundred fifty times seven hundred forty five dollars each. That's half a million dollars. Um, it's uh, I say it's not worth the money in my view. <laughs> Well, it's, um, it's, it's, yeah. Number one. I understand what you're saying, but it it's does irrelevant. not include Dick's Juvenalia, which is public domain and could have been put in there very easily. At least then it would have been accessible and more complete, right? So his, he has like uh, at least a handful, maybe two handfuls of short, short fiction, some of it science fiction, not in there. Totally could have done that. Why didn't they do that? They're lazy as fuck. That's why. If you're doing the complete short stories of Philip K. Dick and you don't include his juvenilia, which are short stories and by Philip K. Dick and are science fiction, what are you doing? Okay. Then it says, uh, then I said, the colors are fluorescent. I don't think that that's a good move. I do not think that that's a good idea for the books. I do not think it's a good idea for your eyes. Um, and, and then if you look at the art, which they, this is the major selling feature for me is they're making, they're commission new art. If you follow the tweet thread, I say it's too highbrow and too generic. It's not all the, all the way through, but the art for we can remember for you wholesale. You can see it there. It's not looking good. The art for the golden man. It's just the face of somebody gold. They didn't read the story because the guy is not made of gold he is golden skinned and he's also an idiot and then infinites i can't even tell what's happening in that picture and then the next one colony which is a very rough and ready science fiction fun story we get this very abstract fluorescent art i mean it might Somehow, well, you, you it, see that it's, scene it's at the bottom. It's a pointless argument, Jesse, because art is people like that. <laughs> some people, some people like that kind of art. People and if like you don't art. like that kind of art. You don't buy it. I'm, it's, it's, I'm not sure that that's like true. Different kinds of art. I'm not, sh- I'm not sure that that's true. Uh, and I want, of course, it's true, Jesse. No, on. no, no. Whoever designed that thought they were doing a damn good job. No, and, I think um, some of them. Be, 750 people in the world are, are good to agree with that. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, we'll see. But <laughs> the important part... But that's the thing. These, these are objects. These are objects for collection. This is not... That's... I mean... Collection in what object. sense? Collection in it's what like sense? It's like buying a sculpture, right? Okay, but I want to I point out there is a, a, a phenomenon in art, right? 
where people sell art that people think is valuable in order to exchange it for later sale. It's a way of moving money illegally, right? So what you do is you buy a sure. painting in New York and you fly with it on your private... Those, but go ahead. There's only 750 of them. <laughs> that, well, well, that's the point, right? Is that this is a, a way of storing value. And if you've got like... Like this is this is what rich people do all the time. To, to some people. I mean, some people collect art because they love the art. Some people collect art because they think they're going to make money on it. Yes. Yeah, right. But some people collect art because they want it on their wall. Oh, I, I, of course. But when you, you're making right. 750 of something, you're not trying to sell as many as you can to everybody, right? It, That's it's not artificial scarcity. Usually, it is artificial art, scarcity. Art is often one object, right? I mean, when you get to the... To the no, they... Uh, stuff. I mean, yeah, the, that's the super high end, right? So this right. is when not you, this is not for the billionaires. The this is not the for the billionaires. They want it on their wall. Yeah. This is this is for a couple of tiers down from the, the billionaires, right? The billionaires have ways of doing this that are much more efficient. But, you know, this is also above the Funko Pop level, right? Where I don't have any Funko sure. Pops. <laughs> yeah, but I, I think that, you know... I don't even know how much they cost. But to, to me, you know, there are, there are a lot each. of people that are below billionaire level that like art like this, and they would buy that and put it on their bookshelf, and it may never get opened or whatever, but that's something that they like. And Folio Society um, actually contributes to that, right? So it's funny because I ran into these guys not too long ago because um, they've done a folio of... Um, the Book of the New Sun. And yeah. I actually looked at it and I, I, I considered purchasing it. It's $200 for it. I, but I, I don't, I don't, yeah, but I, I don't really like the style of it. <laughs> if I liked the style of it, I would have bought it for $200. They have, uh, there is an introduction, which uh, mm-hmm. it, to me is more valuable than all the art that I yeah, got to introduced see. Introduced by Neil Gaiman. Awesome. That's right. I just don't, I don't like that fluorescent style. Of course not. It's fucking ugly. <laughs> And it's going to go out of fashion. Some people do. <laughs> oh, oh, you, 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 you should know that, I mean, if you don't want to spend 200 that, there's going to be a new tour version of uh, the Book of the New Sun coming this Good. fall. Oh, so. that's excellent. That's but I, I also want to point out that on the box, uh, you see there's like these symbols on the mm-hmm. outside of the crates, the crate and the each cover. And, you know, uh-huh. um, those are um, those are Venner card symbols. Yeah. Which which are those? If you remember the beginning of um, Ghost Ghostbusters, where Venkman is is a Venkman. I don't know. Bill Murray is trying to uh, get into some girl's pants, and he pretends that she's guessing right to all the answers of, you know, what what card am I holding? It's she says it's a bunch of wavy lines, and right? it's a it's a square, yeah. right? Um, yeah. So yeah. those Venner card symbols are public domain. So all they're doing here. Is, you know, throwing fluorescent, you know, it, this is bad cover art. <laughs> right? I mean, this In your is. In opinion, it is. And uh, I, I tend to think that most people would agree with you, but enough people are going to disagree well, with you. Yeah, I mean, some people buy, buy, buy crap. Uh, art is just not a, a subjective thing. I mean,. It, it, no, you're saying it is a subjective thing. It is a subjective. Thing. I don't. I don't agree. Some I think it's objective. Like so, some people will fill a room with fluorescent modern art, 
And when I walk into that room, I don't want to be in that room. It makes me unsettled, <laughs> right? So, but some people like that. It's like, you know, a minimalist room, for example, where you talk and you hear an echo. Um, I don't, I don't personally like that, right? Some people thrive on that though. So I, I don't complain about art. Um, but, but I just, uh, put a link in there. I've been dying for a good hardcover of Doomsday Book. And I found out, I buy Subterranean Press every now and then. Okay, Art, on the cover, I would say. And I just, I missed this one, dang it. Um, Well, I'm sure you can get it on the secondary market. It was sold out already. You can go to eBay and buy it for three times the price. Well, I might, someday. I'm looking at, just trying to zoom in on the figure that's lying in the mud on the cover there. Yeah, I can't get enough zoom in to see, but we see London on the back cover. It's probably Kivrin, yeah. Kivrin there, just having it's a, it's uh, an okay book. got that century. Yeah, seven hundred fifty dollars. Books. I mean, it's a uh, one hundred seventy-five is the one I'd buy. I wouldn't buy the seven fifty one because I'm not at that level, right? No, but I do buy subterranean editions sometimes. I've, and, I've had them and too. And luckily, the best of David Brin is coming out, and I thought I'd buy one for me and you. <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I don't have a fireplace I can burn it in. Forty-five dollars for the best of David Brin. I didn't know Dave. I didn't know that David Brin coming out. Interesting. Uh, just, just yeah, it's in the pre-order phase. So I, I bought a couple of those. I bought um, Elizabeth Bear, the best of Elizabeth Bear, mm-hmm. and best of Nancy Cress um, last year from Subterranean. <laughs> This has been the SFF Audio Podcast. Please join us at www.sffaudio.com. And thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio. We're uh, doing that uh, show with Julie on the first story. It was good. I enjoyed it. Oh, <laughs> the first story ever? Yeah, we're starting the ever. first one, and then we're moving on. From yeah. There. <laughs> uh, it was, uh, it we, was did, we did the Epic of Gilgamesh, Paul, which was oh, the, nice. the first story. <laughs> the first oh, story. Very, very nice. <laughs> yeah. We've the, been doing it long enough. We just thought we'd just start over. And start, start at with the beginning. The, first one. The, 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 the only time I've read any of the Epic of Gilgamesh, it well, actually a little bit in college, and also in the first Road to Science Fiction book, they have an excerpt from it. Oh, that's cool. Gosh, I, I need to find those books. James Gunn? Is, James come Gunn, up here yeah. and get them. Come get them from me. You have them? Uh-huh. So I can drive up there and get them? Head up now. Well, you can't Straight get across the, podcast, the border man. Right you can't get across <laughs> the border right now. Uh, you can swim. Just try um, to they, is there something I could climb or dig under or something the, like that? You could that, but just swim is easier. You go out to the Jump beach. From, from tree to tree in British Columbia, <laughs> maybe? Up there in northern Idaho? Um, just like your mom? <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> I guess getting back would be hard. Uh, well, you won't want to go back. Oh. Yeah, I mean, we're all in mourning and wearing black right now. Uh-huh. Because Prince Philip died, you know? Oh, oh yes. yeah, I heard All that. the stores closed. Really? And, um, yeah, uh, I'm wearing a black armband. You are not. 
Chief. <laughs> are the stores really close? The, I don't think the they would flags be. are at half mast. Okay, that I believe. <laughs> are the Trump flags also at half mast? Uh, why did he die? I, I think I think the Trump flags have finally. Uh, What's a uh, Trump flag? Out. I'm not seeing very many Trump flags anymore. What is a Trump flag? Is it like uh, a, just a flag? Donald with- Trump. Donald Trump campaign was giving flags. I mean, or or that people were buying them. I'm I'm guessing, but like just a campaign flag, like a little yeah, with yeah, his name. Okay. Trump, all right, know, various versions of that. Sorry to bring him up. It's all right. There, you um, know, Prince Philip and him are like. I'm holding my fingers <laughs> close together. No, uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, but uh, Prince Philip, he was like 99 years old. Yep. 99 yeah. boons. Go back. <laughs> okay, that okay, that was bad. You're, you're, disres- that. you're disrespecting. Disrespecting. Just, I, I picture just random firings in Paul's brain. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's the loop balloons come out. It's awesome. I love it. He's, insinu- he's insinuating that our uh, our um, queen's uh, husband is a German. He was not uh, a German. He was a Greek. Get it straight, Paul. <laughs> Prince Philip. Don't, don't, don't go bothering me. I'm not the one in trouble here. You're you're insinuating that our great I'm insinuating anything. Uh, husband of the Queen was uh, I'm trying to remember his official title. That's not it. Prince Consort. Yeah, the consort. The mm. fact that I know this you male concubine. It's kind of weird. Yes, male concubine. Uh hey, Mor- Morgan a, Morganatic husband. Where, guys. I did a shelf war with Tam. Wow, Tam. Yeah, nice. What happened to Tam? Yeah, um, what did we do? Uh, Wine Dark Deep. What's that? Have you guys heard that around? Um, no. It's a self-published science fiction um, that's kind of getting pretty popular. Hmm. There's like three novellas that he published. I think all at the same time, but Wine Dark Deep. I think his name is R. Peter Keith. Okay. Very, very good uh, novella. Very, you know, kind of a, a hard science fiction adventure story throwbackish a little bit but yet you know he's trying hard to stay accurate hmm. you know with science known science and stuff nice i see so. i see i see a hard science fiction space opera a combo of star trek the swashbuckling star wars and the realism of the martian that's yeah. that that that's a that's a hard trio to try to <laughs> triangulate I think, with i, I think he say. did i think he did it it, it was fun. It was, was that, fun. Uh, Tam uh, but that would come out this Thursday. I'll I'll uh, edit that up and get it out. Was that was that Tam's suggestion? I haven't heard from him in yeah in years and years his. and years. Yeah. How'd you uh, connect? Oh, every now and then we uh, text. Oh, it's you know, just every now and then out of the blue he'll text and say, uh, "Text or like text. like 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 phone text." Yeah. Wow. Yeah. People still do that, you know. Yeah, but <laughs> that's my main form of communication, I would say. <laughs> you I mean, and my I, niece. I, I, I was already <laughs> sending a stream. I was yeah. already sending a stream of text to Scott if we had actually been able to meet up in Utah last October. For sure. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, that. I mean, when you're like making plans. Well, yeah, you're when you're in the same, you know, geographic region. It makes sense, I think. Mm-hmm. I well, I text my brother. He's a thousand miles away. Uh, yeah, but that's different, I think, because it's family as opposed to, uh, right, no, 
random people. That I mean, I don't know. I, okay. I don't know. I'll allow it, is what I'm saying. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I will allow it. All right. You guys ready? I'm ready. ready and ready. All right. Uh, I'm going to get my Gutenberg out. All right. And I think I had... Yes. I'm picturing him with a Gutenberg Bible in oh, front yes. of him. Absolutely. That's what he's pulled out. I, lost my <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm swearing on it he's right now. <laughs> and swearing by it as well. Leather cover, perhaps a lock on it, maybe. Oh yes, a, a locking clasp. Uh, and I keep it locked so I don't actually accidentally read anything in it. <laughs> um. All right. Here we go. You ready, Paul? Ready. Here we go. <laughs>